episode 71 of The Passive Hang. It's Fayon here, and today we are graced by the presence of Bren Vizirolu. Bren is a movement teacher based in San Jose, California, and he is also a researcher in the field of kinesiology. He has a passion for science, and you'll hear that very much so in this long-spanning conversation of three hours where we get deep into Bren's training background and what it was like to grow up not physically gifted, but to then apply himself and transform himself into now becoming engrossed in this study of movement, which he explores both within traditional scientific research and also practical research through his own body with the movement practice and being a movement teacher. Bren also runs a fantastic eponymous YouTube channel, which I recommend that you guys check out. This includes a recent video which he posted, which is a strategy about deciphering your own injury and how to deal with it when it happens. I really recommend you guys have a watch of that one and I get to ask him a few follow-up questions to that video. All right, well, no time to waste. It's a long conversation. Hope you guys enjoy and we'll get stuck in. Hey, listeners, I have Bren. I'm not even going to try and pronounce your last name, to be honest. <laughs> so today we have Bren. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. And, and how do I pronounce your name? Fayon? Fayon. Fayon. Okay, that's, that's pretty easy, actually. Great. Yeah. We <laughs> both have names where, yeah, again, maybe we're, we're haunted by school teacher memories. When Did you ever have it where, yeah? <laughs> where they had to call out your name in class and you're like, oh, it's going to be terrible. You, you know what usually happens is like, they're like, Brett and like, the, the, I'm like, okay, it's me. Like, <laughs> like don't worry about it, it's me. Yeah, you just cut them off before it. Like, because you, you, you always know, like the kid before you and then you're like, I'm up, I'm up next. I was really like, yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, it's it's Vezirolu, and it's it's not that long or actually like that tricky. Like, especially if you know how to say it. Mm-hmm. But like, the G is silent, and I think it's just like a weird looking name for a lot of people because uh, it's Turkish. Yeah. And um, yeah, like most <laughs> you just struggle with it. Vezirolu. Like, I don't, I don't think... Vezirolu. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's not that hard. Um, but everyone like will say Vezerol glue and like if if they can read it you mm. know like <laughs> or if they've had it read or whatever um, yeah so you're Turkish but, did you yeah Turkish. Were, you, were you born there or you were born like in the US born in the US so um, born and raised in California so um Basically, so my dad is uh, Turkish, and my mom's Portuguese, and um, dad sort of immigrated, mom was born in the U.S., but like her parents immigrated, and um, so, you know, they met on the East Coast, my dad went to MIT, my mom went to like a Northeastern affiliate, mm-hmm. and then so basically like they were going to get married, 
but like my dad's family was very Muslim and my mom's family was very like Catholic, mm-hmm. like to the extent that like both families kind of like protested, you know, oh. like, like, oh, you can't like marry him, you know? And um, <laughs> yeah, I think my dad's family was like, oh, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and my mom's family was like, no, you, you cannot marry him. <laughs> we, we will not allow it, you know? Wow. And so um, basically like, so then they like eloped or they like threatened to elope and then the family was like, okay, fine. Like, all right, like we weren't that serious, you know, yeah. so it's okay. But like, because of that, I think cultural pressure from both sides, mm. both my parents, like uh, they never pushed either religion on us and they never really pushed either language on us. Like they weren't speaking either language at home. Yeah. Like, I didn't speak Turkish and my dad didn't speak Portuguese. So that as well. Um, so I grew up, my, my brother and I grew up very just kind of like American Silicon Valley engineer culture of like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, yeah. that's where we are. <laughs> and how is that? Cause you know, like my perception of Silicon Valley is like either what I read on the tech news or yeah. that, sh- that show Silicon Valley. And I, and I, and I don't know if that's, <laughs> any representation of the truth also it could be funny if it was there's there's a little bit of it i think for sure i haven't seen much of the show i've only seen like a few clips here and there um but it's like it's very like i would say like anti-dogmatic you know Mm -hmm. of like like a lot of like cultural things like is just kind of BS, you know, or like they're just, they're just, they just, they simply are that way because they've been that, you know? And I think there's probably more emphasis on that in Silicon Valley because especially it's like, you know, like who needs that stuff? We can build something new. Like we'll build something better. Like who cares? Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad was like, you know, full in on the tech world, you know, the whole time. And, uh, yeah. And then, you know, from the get go, I think like, I really took to like math and I was Mm -hmm. really in that, like always liked it. Um, my dad was really good at it. So, you know, I, one of my, one of my earlier, earlier memories was like, I was teaching some kid, uh, at at my school, uh, about like multiplication. And I think Mm -hmm. we were in like kindergarten still. And he was like, I still remember he was like, He's like, no, like that doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> it's like you're making this up. <laughs> no, really, like this, this is a thing. <laughs> As in, multiplication didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think we had like learned addition. We hadn't learned it in school yet. You know, okay. but my dad was like teaching me. Um, yeah, I think it it was nice in a lot of ways, and like it's certainly cool, like. I was just reading the Steve Jobs biography. Have you mm-hmm. have you read it? I haven't read it. No, it's, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and it was really cool to like be reading and I was listening to the audiobook actually. But uh, it was so cool to listen to all of this and like just like oh like I've been there and like mm. oh I've passed by that thing you know and like hear all this thing of like the stuff and like this company and 
all these other companies that have like changed the world in like Silicon mm. Valley. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been really cool. Um, the schools were really, really good. I was like very privileged growing up. I was fully aware of that. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know, growing up in a place like that, there'd be sort of normal societal pressures to you know, enter into oh, yeah. that, that world, you know, become an entrepreneur or uh, become an engineer. You said you're good at math as well. So then did you have like this physical side then that, that sort of laid this basis for what you're doing now? Like well, what's up with that? Excellent point. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was a big thing for me. So like I was so, I was into the, math especially and and later science um and just like was not very athletic as a kid at all um so it was like okay like whatever you know and I started I think in middle school I started playing more video games and just like didn't look back like that was it Mm -hmm. like there was no no more physical activity you know Mm. and so basically by high school I wanted to like I really decided I wanted to play football. And so I like joined the team and uh, just like was horrible. Like was horrible in every, I was like a hundred, I was five, three, a hundred pounds. And with, with zero athleticism, like n- no idea how to catch the ball. You're just going to get crushed. <laughs> crushed everywhere. Like even by like the smaller guy. <laughs> um, and then so from there, and I've, I've always been like very like stubborn, you know, in a lot of ways. Hmm. So from there, I was like, okay, like there is this one kid that would like always throw me around a little. Uh, it's basically like bullying me, you know, on the field because he could, because he could. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also the coach's son, but I, I don't think that played too much of a role. Anyway, um, <laughs> But so after the season ended, I'm like, okay, like I need to like lift some weights. I want to like get bigger and stronger so that, because I felt like at the time, I felt like I was so small and weak and I felt like the strength and size was the issue that it it felt like made me impossible to be able to like kind of like defend myself and like be able to like have control over like what was happening to me, right? And so I started like lifting weights every day. I was in the gym like three hours every day. And wow, you just jumped straight into it. You were just all all <laughs> in, you know. And so like we had done some weightlifting like in the summer before the season, but I was like, eh, you know, like kind of doing whatever, and it was a little bit. Yeah. But after the after the first season ended, I was like, okay, let's go. You know. <laughs> Do you just sort of have this quality where you just like, yep that's it. I'm just going to go head first into it and go f- full into it and, you know, try and really de- change myself here. Yeah. I think, I think I've kind of always had that to some degree. Yeah. Um, in, in whatever I'm, I'm interested in, I tend to like really, mm. <laughs> really push it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after, after the first year of like lifting weights, I put on like 30 pounds of muscle and, uh, it was, it was funny because 
yeah, that was that was a lot, you know, especially you know for someone so skinny, and so everyone's like starts saying like, oh, is he like taking steroids or like blah blah blah. And my mom told me like years later, she's like, you know, you know, I was like making some joke about like taking steroids or whatever. Hmm. And I was like, no, you shouldn't joke about that. Did you know? She's like, did you know? Two of the parents on the team, they came up to me. <laughs> and they yeah. basically like interrogated her. They were like, he's taking steroids. Like you need no to be way. careful. <laughs> and she's like, no, like, I'm pretty, he's just been at the gym every day. <laughs> I mean, she'd seen me like, you know, she pick me up from the gym every day and like, uh, I started having like protein shakes and like eating more meat and blah, blah, blah. So, but anyway, that was kind of like the start of like my more physical journey. And, um, and then in college, basically like when I started getting exposed to Edo stuff, like it, it started becoming obvious later that like the strength and size that I had built was not that physically useful. You know, that did started. You, becoming... Did you have certain moments where that became really apparent where like something happened and you were like, Hey, this isn't quite right. Yeah. It's going to sound silly, but like, I remember there was, there was one time I was like carrying the groceries home and this, this is more like strength related oddly, but um, I was carrying the groceries home and I had to like, it was like a mile walk or something. And I had like a few bags in each hand, but I had to like stop and put them down like multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I can't carry these fucking groceries, you know? Mm. um there's that and then uh there are a few times like I don't remember any specific ones of just like people would, as I had like built more muscle people had started like you know they if there was something to lift or carry or open they would like yeah Fred like what what do you do it yep and like I often couldn't you know like just like opening jars like I wasn't I hadn't done much like deadlifting or like yeah. grip work Mm. but my grip really wasn't as strong as as it should have been and like I couldn't do some of those simple things and and then like really the biggest thing was that like I got bigger faster and way stronger like I think I was benching like not that this is a great metric but because I didn't do deadlifting or squatting at the beginning I didn't know I, I can't give you the numbers for those but, were you just were you just doing up a buddy? Were you one of those guys? <laughs> kind of, because yeah. se- separately, uh, my mom had convinced me. She was like, "If you lift lift too much weight, so like it'll stunt your growth." Yeah, this is always like that was said to me as well when I was younger. It's like growing up swimming, and you're like, and I was already short, you know. So I was like, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to touch any weights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so my compromise was, I was like, I just won't lift too much weight with lower body, you mm-hmm. know, but upper body stuff, that'll be fine. Yeah. I never once, I never once thought to like actually fucking look into it. Like 
And that's the, the horrible part. Like if I took 30 seconds to like search it and like look for some research, it would have been so easy. But but yeah, I was I was doing mostly upper body. I was doing lower body too, but like it was always like lighter weights. Like I never went over like a hundred pounds for like squats or something, like you know. So but my bench went from freshman year, it was like 60 pounds to by senior year, it was like I think like somewhere around 250, mm, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like it went up a lot. And um, I also, I got a lot faster too. Like my 40 time went from like five, six, seven to like five Oh ish, you know? Yep. And, and as that happened, like it helped, but I still was pretty terrible at football. You know, so like it was like, <laughs> so there was that like cognitive dissonance already there. Um, but yeah, so then I was exposed to Ida's work and I was like, oh, one, this makes a lot of sense. And two, like, this is really interesting. And three, like, this guy is fucking brilliant. Um, and that's when I started like slowly starting to dive in more and more to like the movement side of things. Yeah. Um, how did that how did that look like you know very early on in those days for you like did you find him through the blog and stuff and then you just started like messing yeah. around with the stuff that he was sharing like yeah what what was the training looking like at, at that point it was um I saw his I saw a highlight of an interview he did with the Rob Ross and mm-hmm. and I mentioned when I mentioned this uh before like one of my friends actually like that's also been doing like Ido's online coaching for like years and years. It's like, Oh, it was the same interview for me. But like, I saw this, this interview highlight and it was just so incredible. Um, and then like, after that, I was like, you know, watching all Ido's videos and, uh, then I joined the, the local gymnastics club. Like that was the first thing for me was like, mm-hmm. I associated movement with gymnastics. And I think Ida was like a lot more into gymnastics at that time. Like, but yeah, I thought of gymnasts as movement. It's certainly closer than football, you know, but (laughs) so I joined the local gymnastics club. I started doing that. And then I started getting more into Ido stuff and like started online coaching, started doing like, I did an event. I did a movement X in New York um and online coaching and then basically once I graduated I was just doing more and more and more and yeah. uh yeah made the yeah. jump to full-time and full-time movement teacher and uh yeah it's been it's been quite the journey man it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Been... it definitely sounds like it because I know you know you've um <clears throat> done some other studies like not just in the in the movement field as well. So it sounded like, you know, you're juggling like quite a lot at the same time as well. But yeah, um, yeah maybe take us through for you, like that that training from that early point. And then when you jumped on to like the online coaching as well, like what was, yeah, how, how are you sort of organizing it all? Like what were you actually doing and how is that evolving like uh, over the time? Like how, how long were you doing the the coaching, online coaching for? I did a lot of it on and off. Like, so I did like 
<clears throat> I think I technically did like six phases, but I did a lot of it like I was like totally broke, you know? Mm. So I did like the first two and then I like recycled the second phase for like a year. <laughs> you just kept on redoing it. <laughs> just kept on like... um, and then, yeah, I did the same thing like years later and then, uh, and then again. Um, so it was a lot on and off and a lot like taking the things that I had learned from them and just like doing it on my own and cycling that. Yeah. Um, Sorry, your question is to take you through the training I was doing, like in that period. Yeah, you know, like from I'm guessing at the start, you know, it would have been like quite a change to like training you're doing from before. And, you know, like everyone's heard as well, like the online coaching can start being like quite full on with like a lot of sessions as well. I don't know if that was like like that for you from the very start or event yeah. as you got into it more, you started training, you know, up, uh, up the hours and the sessions and stuff and, yeah. you know, the stuff you're working on. So yeah, maybe just take us through a bit of how that all, all look like. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's pretty easy. <laughs> like looking back, maybe it's always easy to say this, but looking back, it was like, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, like, <laughs> I just had no fucking clue. Um, so I think I started with, I was doing some of like Coach Summer stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Coach Summer had a lot of like online programs, like his, his, uh, his forums and courses, basically. Um, and so I started with like his handstand stuff. And I think that was a big mistake. (laughs) Like it it took me, it took me like a year to like, cause his, his things, it was so like, it was like you, Coach Sommer's way of doing things is like, so it's, it's, he coaches for like the, or coached for the junior national, like gymnastics team, right? Junior master mitts. So like the way he coaches, it's like, okay, if you've got 20 years left, like on your career or like 15 years, whatever, mm. like we take our sweet time. Like who cares? Like, you know, you get the, get the skill in five years and, and, you know, you'll still have like 10 years left in your career. Um, so he's very, very slow and conservative on progressions. And like one of his big things was like this whole like half-life of connective tissues is much longer than muscle. So hence, you know, you should always train very slowly and you wait for like the the connective tissue to catch up to the muscle tissue. He never mentions that like connective tissue gets injured far less than muscle tissue. And, you know, (laughs) it's not like they both uh, have similar relative injury risk. but yeah, so, so that whole thing was, was really slow for me and um, very just like handstand focus. Um, and, and then like, so it was basically a whole year that I didn't do any freestanding work on the handstand, like freestanding headstand, but that's not the same thing at all. Yep. And um, couldn't, couldn't balance at all, you know, so there's a, there's a year gone right there. Yep. Uh, 
<laughs> and then, um, yeah, and, and so when I joined the, the gymnastics club, I forget the order, which one I did first, which one, how much was in parallel, whatever. But um, like they were, it's, it's a, gymnastics culture is very, it's very much like, okay, like I'm a coach because I was an athlete for the last 20 years and whatever, I decided to coach, you know? <laughs> so they just teach the skills kind of like the way they had been taught. Mm. Like it's, it's not like a, for instance, I think with, with powerlifting culture, I think these days, especially, and even maybe even earlier, like there's a, a lot of the culture is really focused on like the research and reading the research and like being up to date with all that. Yeah. And like quite sophisticated with their training. Like you would think they're all meatheads and you'd be totally wrong. You yeah. know, like they're, they're super fucking smart. There's a bit, yeah, training nerd culture happening there. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. Um, but gymnastics is very like old school, like, you know, this is how we did, like, for instance, the way they teach handstands is, um, you know, there's in multiple gyms, there's just a section of the class where you just kick up to a handstand over and over and over. You kick mm -hmm. up, you fall down, you kick up, you fall down. And you don't even go in from the floor. You go in from standing with your arms overhead. Yeah. That is somewhat what you do more with gymnastics for like hurdles and handsprings and whatnot. But still, yeah, it's harder for beginners. And if you're completely incompetent to begin with, which everyone is as a beginner, like yep. that's really, really like so ineffective. <laughs> but if you do that, like imagine you do that five times a week for like, you know, five years, like you will start to get it eventually. Mm. You know, it's just very, very ineffective. It's very ineffective, but because most gymnastics programs you started as a kid, you have that time to enormous amount of time to develop. Like, and they do a lot of volume as a kid as well. Like my cousin, she's um, I think she's like ten, uh, ten or eleven. She's like clocking up to almost like thirty hours a week or something. Like she's deep oh. into like one of the programs, oh. you know. And yeah, yeah. and I'm like wow okay that's yeah, yeah you would be developing yeah. a lot at that age as well like <laughs> with that amount of volume totally 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 yeah there, there's a bit of a division between like the recreational gymnastics programs and then like what your friends are doing like those are like the serious kind of like competitive track and yeah. and then same thing there right like you imagine if you're doing, you know, you're kicking up to a handstand over and over, but now you're doing that and other similar style things on many different skills, many different events every day. Plus like some basic conditioning stuff, like, yeah, you're going to get really freaking good. Mm. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's like not that effective. Um, certainly right now. Right. Like yeah. for instance, like that handstand drill is, is horrible for beginners. But like, if you can do that and hold a 30 second handstand every time, like that's a great drill to work on, mm. you know? So eventually it becomes helpful <laughs> but in the meantime. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I was on like, it was just our college gymnastics club. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't even like the, the collegiate team. Yep. So um, we didn't have a collegiate team. 
you know? So it's not like like the the D1 programs now, like where they're doing those 30 hour weeks. And like those guys are crazy. Like <laughs> it's a whole different level of gymnastics to to the the stuff we were doing. But um yeah. Um and then when I started doing the uh yeah. I did the first um, workshop, the Movement X workshop, and I was like, oh, this is quite different from my impression of what we would be doing, you know? And that was like my introduction to like some of the locomotion stuff and like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this, this is, I'm, I'm shocked how little I understood before this, you know? Was this because you were kind of just coming in with like that frame of mind going, oh, it's like gymnastics and it's that sort of stuff. And then what was presented was like quite different. A lot of that, I think. Um, I I think that played a role for sure. Hmm. Um, and, And a lot of it was just like, you know, anything, right? Like if you just see, even if you watch a bunch of videos and you just see like, the little bit of stuff that's online when you actually come to see like it's like it is like a tip of the iceberg sort of thing right mm-hmm. like you just see the public stuff and like you just see like the high level skills that someone would put in a video but there is like a, a much larger practice underneath that mm-hmm. that supports that and uh yeah like you're just not gonna know like you can extrapolate and, and think, you know, but, yeah. but you really don't until you do it. Um, so I think that was the bigger thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you- when I started doing that, that was, yeah, I was, I was still in school. So I was doing my, doing my biochemistry and then like training three, four hours a day and, it was good, man. It was it was super tough, but it was good. So yeah, that would have been an interesting interesting times because you would have been um, studying and being like so neurologically demanding, like just with a lot of that work, and then yeah. you're doing this uh, movement training as well, which I think we can all come to recognize. Other than being physically demanding, it is really neurologically demanding as well. Like. I don't know about you, but every time like I get a new phase or like there's a change in like certain amount of drills, then the feeling after that session, right, is very different because you're like, I've just had to try and process all these new kind of movement patterns and try it and suck at it, but then yeah. see and, and and learn, but then you're getting physically tired as well. It can be, yeah, yeah. very, very, very challenging. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point you bring up because, like, I always thought it would be that way. Like, it would be, like, a competitive thing, like, one or the other, you know? But, like, I got some of my best grades during that semester, and I was taking hard classes. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like... I feel like there's there's some level of synergy there, you know? Because, like... Both obviously take a lot of time. Both obviously take a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. But I, and hence, like you would expect that they would have to compete with each other. But I, I feel like there's something else going on that really drives this 
this synergy that you can do better with both than, than you would otherwise expect. Mm. Um, yeah. It, and you know, it could be as simple as just like movement gets more blood flow to the brain and <laughs> it could just be that. Yeah. But um, like, like I noticed when I did the, uh, the 24 hour Q and a, um, I was getting real tired. I was just like standing around talking, sitting, talking, blah, 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 talking. Um, and at some point I'm like, okay, like, and, and I was just answering questions nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. I, I don't think I got to a point where I had answered all the questions people asked until like 18 hours in. <laughs> and at, one, at one point there was like, people were saying like, they had asked the question like three hours ago. And it was only that I was like actually answering the question. <laughs> but but at some point, like pretty deep into it, I'm like, okay, like I'm pretty fried. I'm just gonna do some like locomotion, do some movement. Mm. Like <laughs> and I'll answer your questions while while I do it, you know. <laughs> and I swear, man, it was crazy. Like I just felt like this this wave of like kind of energy but also like mental acuity and like sharpness like come back you know when I was like previously so tired and drained and you know so there's there's definitely something there to like the challenging stacking challenging physical and, and mental um disciplines you know it, even yeah. if we were of course they're both cognitively and mentally demanding right for what the brain is actually doing mm. um and they're not they're not separate you know but if we were to make that simple division then then yes yeah well uh, yeah this is kind of an area i wanted to touch on which is you know about mm. like sort of learning development and you know like mm. skills skill development uh, as well um because i've mm. thought of, thought about this uh a lot because one of the things that uh, really attracted me to this whole movement side was because it was more geared towards like this, like educational sort of aspect and like the, uh, with all these people that um, I was started reading off and how they were expressing themselves, show me this uh, kind of broke down this, um, this image that I had growing up as a kid where it's kind of like, this image of the dumb brute, you know, like someone who's like really physically built and who's just kind of like an idiot, like, the, um, and that the worlds of intellectualism and the physical realm are very mutually exclusive. But then yeah. um, something that I think like this whole movement culture as it like started building up kind of um, dispelled all that within my uh, thinking because then I was reading all these very eloquently put words, you know, so there's a sense of like, I guess, romantic communication, but then with the ideas that they're talking about as well was from all these different fields where I'm like, I was training, but also outside the, the scope of training and like, what's up with that. And so I'm like, quite interested to explore this, this train of thought that we're kind of unraveling here, which is like that, that maybe there is, huge synergy between like the physical and, um, and, and mental development, if we can even make those two divides, because normally right. you, might, 
you might see like a scientist who's, you know, not, not very physically able, right. Because they're just like in the lab all the time and not doing too much. And then yeah. on the flip side, you have like the Olympian who's just like training all the time, but they're uh, not expected to be like that, that smart, you know, but right. that might be completely opposite. So um, yeah, like in, in terms of, I guess the, what, what I was, uh, where, where I'm trying to head with this is almost like, what have you maybe observed in terms of utilizing the physical to almost like optimize the learning environment for where we yeah. can, for where we can, yeah, like accelerate learning potentially. Mm. Okay. Okay. So I want to take, take some steps back and then we'll, we'll work back to this question. Um, so, so first let's, let's talk about the whole like physical versus mental thing. Right. So this, there's, there's a, a theory of this. It's very well accepted. Like this is sort of the, the modern paradigm. It's called um, the theory of embodied cognition. And I actually can't really do it justice because it's very complex, like linguistic, <laughs> but, but um the basics of it are, are very simple, which is we've done a lot of experiments that make it very obvious that there is no simple divide between like the cognitive things we do and like our physical body, right? So like there are simple things like, so, so I think that the competing idea and, and maybe the older paradigm was like, you are your brain, or, you know, if you take that a step further, then you can say you are your nervous system and your, your brain is your mind and you are just walking around in this hunk of meat in a skeleton, right? And so like your brain is a different thing and your body is just, just, just this meat, right? It's like, it's this dumb little thing, you know? Meat, meat bag. Meat bag. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, you're a... <laughs> It drives me crazy when people say that now, but, but people say that they're like, ah, oh, you're walking hug of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so like there are experiments that you can do where it's like, you know, you can like hold a, a pencil or a pen in your mouth and you do it in a way where it's like, you're smiling and you ask people, how happy are you? Like just, just separately. You don't, you don't ask them any association. You just, how happy are you? And they say they're happier than when they don't. And like, if you do it in a way where it's more like they're frowning, they say they're, they're more upset. Um, and so there are all these experiments and plus like all of our language is, this is the part that I can't do justice to. All of our language is in relation to physical things. They're physical analogies, physical metaphors, like, it is based on a physical, our whole language and our, our way of thought is based on physicality. You cannot remove it, you know? Um, it, you cannot remove that. And like, you cannot remove your, one, you can't just like remove your, your brain and your nervous system from your body and like expect that it would work. Like, even if you like theoretically, like you plugged it in and say some like Neuralink thing, you know, like yep. things would be very different. 
Um, and two, like not all of the, the information processing mechanisms or like uh, pattern recognition mechanisms, if you call them that, are in the brain and the nervous system, right? A lot of them are like just in the way the body is structured, one, at a macro level. And then two, there's like the, the absurd complexity that happens like at a biochemical level, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is just... <laughs> that is just a crazy mind-blowing level of of complexity and and design um yeah that was my main takeaway from studying biochemistry is like <laughs> the human body is insane <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so so we can't make that separation and and we have to that's the theory of embodied cognition we have to realize that you are not this mind inhabiting a hunk of meat. You are the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. The two cannot be separated. They're deeply intertwined, right? Um, so then coming back to like the, the physical and, and mental thing or physical and like cognitive, I think is easier to make like more of a separation. Um, at one level, so, so like there are simple things, right? Like, and if you think of like just the movement involved, um, ah, there's a TED talk. I'm forgetting the the, the author's name, but um, the speaker. But it's like why we need brains. I think it's something Wolpert. Um, and and he gave you know similar idea like the reason that we have brains is for movement. And so one of the examples he gives is like. Um, someone did a PhD thesis on getting a robot to just like pick up a cup of water, mm. you know, that is the level of complexity that's involved with these things. Like you think about like, you know, just like what your eyes would have to do. Right. So like, uh, let's say, okay, my phone's over here. Right. Like just what my eyes have to do to get these, these two images to then, estimate the approximate distance to my phone and then like at each joint there's this this proprioceptive signals right they're, they're telling me like how much the joints are moving and so as i reach towards it there's all these different joints that are each getting these signals and they're telling me approximately how far my hand is how close it is to the phone and then that's being like uh, cross process with like my vision and seeing my hand and, 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 you know, estimate, okay, how, how close is it? It's getting closer. It's getting closer. And then, you know, holding it, how much force do I produce? Right. Do I just like, you know, yank it off the floor and like how much is, is enough to lift it at the speed I want and then bring it, you know, now there's a, a larger muscular contraction to produce force to like hold this thing. How do I balance that? Right. And then all of these signals are noisy, you know, like you're never going to get a perfect signal. So there's this. So when you actually break down the level of like information processing, like mm -hmm. how, how much cognitive work has to be done by the whole body, let's say, how much information processing work has to be done by the whole body? for a very simple movement task, what we would consider to be a very simple movement task, it's crazy, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd. So at that level, like 
you can consider sports and, and physical disciplines as a very, or some more than others, but like in a way you can consider all of them very, very demanding from an information processing level, mm -hmm. right? Um, so when you look at like what the brain is doing, it's doing a hell of a lot. You do an fMRI and you see like what areas of the brain are getting how much blood flow to approximate how much work they're doing. You see like it's very active, you know? Um, that said, like, I think there's, there's like a, there's a level of, I think just like what you're exposed to, you know? So like you're, if you're an athlete and like, I want to be like polite with this, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're an athlete and you're like, one, one thing is like for athletes, they're often, they have no awareness often of how complex what they're doing is right. They treat it as like very simple. And I think just by treating it as very simple, like that's already a huge mistake, you know, huge, huge, huge. And I think that will really hold you back in almost every sport. Um, and in some sports, I think it would cripple you, right? Like, for instance, if, if you thought like jiu-jitsu was a simple thing, like it would, it would, or wrestling, any fighting sport, I think it would, it would cripple your effectiveness. Um, because then you're not, you don't think it's important. So you're not concerned with like pattern recognition and like learning techniques and, and seeing seeing the difference between the technique that was shown, the, the formal one, and the technique that you have to do, and the modifications that you have to make to make it work when your opponent does something different. But there's a crazy it, amount of complexity there. This is the difference between like a more um, chaotic environment versus like, say, if you're just like going for a run and it's, and it's rhythmical, right? And then um, it'd be more like when you can fine tune into the feeling or the intuitive sense, like it, it just feels like you're running right versus yeah. If someone's going yeah. for a different type of headlock or something, you're going right. to have to try and think your way a bit more to get out of it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Right. So like there's still running is a great example. Like there's still technique in running and anyone who's a runner will tell you that. Mm. But like, if you're a runner, you can get away with a lot more, like, ah, there's no information processing and running and you just, you know, you, David Goggins, you're like, it's <laughs> about, you know, like <laughs> discipline and pain, and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you can't take that approach to, to headlocks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it's different in different sports, but, and, and movements, but um, there's, there's a level of like what you're exposed to, like in addition to like your perception of the thing, like for instance, if, if I'm an Olympic level wrestler, right? And I have like crazy awareness there of, of what my body can do. And especially like quick reactions to like what the opponent will do and this, this absurd network of like perception action coupling of what they do and what I would do and, and 
millions, if not billions of different scenarios. Um, that doesn't necessarily give you a good understanding of like physics even, you know, like even though physics is at the root of what you're doing, mm. like you would have an intuition for a lot of it. But like one of the things I find is like, you know, there, there's a lot that tends to be missing, like in, in those sort of athletes um, at a conceptual level. Um yeah, and, and this is one of the problems I had with like gymnastics coaching of like they would get, for instance, like the way they teach um, twisting. It's like, okay, you jump and then you like you tuck in your arms and that allows you to do the twist. Like you, you tuck in in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's completely ignorant. And I'm sure not all gymnastics coaches teach this way, but it's, it's extremely common. I haven't seen a gymnastics coach that doesn't teach this way. Mm -hmm. The physical reality is you cannot change your physical inertia once you leave the floor. So if you don't take off with a rotation, you will not have any. You can like, there's a, a small exception you can do basically for like a half twist, but like it won't have any inertia. You cannot create that rotational inertia without exerting a force on something else. And if you're in the air, you know, just waving your hand and pushing some air is not going to get nothing to push off. Yeah. <laughs> nothing significant. Um, so like, that's an example of like something even within the sport that people have been doing, you know, their whole lives and, and can be extremely high level in, and they just like, don't understand like the, the physics that underlies it. That, that what they're actually doing is generating a rotational force when they take off and before they take off. And then as they're in the air, this position helps them maximize the um, angular velocity, right? Mm -hmm. But so, so there's a balance between like, and then on the other side, right? You have like the scientists, like you mentioned, that like, mm -hmm have no physical understanding like whatsoever you yep. know like there's no body intuition there's no movement intelligence um and there's just this like theoretical understanding which i think is awesome but um and, and i think in general like i think you could say like almost all scientists push their they push their discipline forward in like a very small way, mm. like, because that's, or sometimes a large way, but, but everyone's like pushing it forward a little in some way um, because that's the way it's structured, you know? Um, so like, that's a huge plus for them, but yeah, there's, there's this huge thing you're missing out on. And, and if you're, you're taking a body that's designed for movement and complex movements and doing them all the time. And you're putting it in an environment where you're sitting still for, you know, who knows, like 15 hours a day plus sometimes. Yeah. Um, you are working with your, not a, not a tool. You're working with yourself in a constantly suboptimal environment. You know, like 
And so even if all you want to do is like push forward biochemistry and our understanding of, you know, cancer, like the small amount and, you know, make your, your contributions to the field. Like, I think you're always better off with at least a certain level of focus on the physicality and on, on yourself, you know, because (laughs) it's like you, you, when you focus entirely on like the work, your body, you become just a tool for that. Hmm. And you are in that suboptimal, like really physically decaying state, you know, of like, yeah. And, and you pay the price for it for sure. So um, I think there's definitely things that can be learned on both sides, Hmm. you know, um, there, there's, there's a way that has to be balanced. And, and like you said, like there's some people in the movement world that like, actually most people, like certainly in like the movement culture side, like are very intelligent, you know, super intelligent people. Um, Edo himself, like really, really smart guy. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that can be balanced between the two and it should be done. I think in a way where like, there's a lot of physicality, but there's also a lot of exposure to like the theory and the science and the research, mm. you know? Yeah. Like if you miss, if you miss either of those sides, like there are problems. Yeah. Oh, you miss some um, certain perspectives. Um, oh yeah. That, that, that can advance your understanding. Right. But totally. um, yeah, like a, a, a trend thought that I'm having here is almost like, um, if like everything is like physical movement and you know that it can also like help uh with oh i mean it's inextricably linked with cognitive ability you know is there like some some ways where we can almost use physical movement and like purposeful intentional physical movement as a tool to almost accelerate learning i don't know if you've ever yet contemplated that or like you know the common one sometimes is you know every five minutes every hour, you know, have a break and walk around and, and, and do something. Right. And, you know, yeah. that's, that's something yeah. you know, sometimes I aim to do, and, you know, you might do some spinal waves or something, right. Not don't yeah. always get around to it, but you feel better, but I, yeah, yeah, I haven't actively thought whether that maybe is, is better for like the mm-hmm. cognitive, like say I'm doing work tasks versus if I'm just yeah. doing two, three hours straight without any, like physical nourishment during that yeah. time. Yeah. I think that's a, a really great idea for a study that could very easily be done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, anyone watching, if you've got a lab, if, if someone hasn't done it already, honestly, I, I would be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, this whole like take a break every like hour, you know, do five minutes every hour, like, that's really tough for me. Like I am very much like a, if I'm focused on something, like mm-hmm. if I'm editing like videos, especially like it's very common, like I'll start going and I'll look up and it's five hours later, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you don't want to fuck with that. At, at, at some level, you don't want to fuck with that too much because like those periods of, of deep work and flow yeah. are like, by far the most productive ones 
you know? And, and from the same level, like on the movement side, you know, like five minutes is like, it was like, we're just getting started, you know, we're just, we're just, we just got warmed up. Yeah. Um, so like from a physical level, it's, it's really great to like do little tidbits every once in a while, um, especially every hour or so. But I find that's extremely hard for me, like the way I am personally, and like for all my students, like everyone I've worked with, like that's, that's tough. Um, and that's for people like in the movement world, right? Like people yeah. outside of it has no <laughs> chance. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are other ways that like they can be combined, right? Like, especially when we start thinking about things more creatively, I think that's where like there's much more of like certainly synergy as far as output, right? Because it's not all, it's not all just about output, but like, there's um there was a book of, on like morning routines of like all these famous people i, f- I forget what it, it might just be like called morning routines it was a pretty mm-hmm. popular book but there were so many of these people that like they would start their day with like a three-hour walk you know mm-hmm. and like that was their big like they would have all these ideas i think there was there was one guy in particular like he would always have his notebook with it like always and he'd take these walks and he'd come up with these ideas and he'd write them down um so i think like from that side the like you mentioned being exposed to different perspectives then there's a huge synergy you know because there's so much like um in the the world of movement and the different worlds of movement there's so much knowledge there, you know, there's, there's so much, um, a lot of it that like predates, you know, our scientific, you know, how long have we been really doing science, right? Like Mm -hmm. not that long, um, versus things like wrestling. How long have we been wrestling? You know, like (laughs) (laughs) maybe it was a lot longer time. Yoga is very, very old in, in the more traditional forms. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, science is better in, in the way that it, it refines itself, but like there is a value to like, you know, millennia of, of, of human research <laughs> yeah. and, and all the different perspectives that can come from these different disciplines and studying them and then applying not only, not only those things, but like the way you learn those things and like the the trials and tribulations of learning those things, when you apply those to your to your cognitive more cognitive work, there's a huge value there. Um, and when I was at Stanford, um, I was in the BioX department, and so the the whole idea there was the whole building is like very interdisciplinary, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of biology focused. But like there's biologists, there's chemists, there's biochemists, there's engineers, there's physicists, there's like computer scientists, chemical engineers. And you put all these people in the same buildings and you put a lot of them, like mix them up in the labs too. And when you have all these people with all these different perspectives in the same rooms and they're talking to each other all the time, 
like there's a lot more of this cross-pollination of like different worlds. Like, like for example, I think, you know, if someone puts, you, you put a bunch of mathematicians in a room, right? This is, the, this is the thing with diversity. You put a bunch of mathematicians in a room and you give them a problem to solve, maybe a problem everyone's working on. There's only so many different perspectives that they're going to try to solve that problem from, mm. right? And, and each perspective is going to have its, its different limiting things. And so like very often, if it's this problem people have been working on, they haven't solved it yet, maybe that perspective is part of the problem. And hence, like, especially like with, with movement and these different disciplines, man, like some of the things people come up with in these disciplines are so freaking clever. You know, they're so brilliant. Um, and that, that's one of the things I love about like studying and teaching movement in general is like, we get to be exposed to all of those like brilliant and, and beautiful ideas and perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have those at your disposal and, and like you can wear those different hats and come at these problems from all these different perspectives and all the things you learn from like going on those journeys, like that is a really powerful thing. And I think, um, again, like the exact accuracy of this may be a bit off, but, um, there's the book range by David Epstein. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you read it? And, and one of the red bits of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good book. I, I wasn't, it wasn't the book I hoped it would be maybe, <laughs> but, um, one of the, the, strongest points he made in the book to me was this idea that like the people that are innovating the most, I think it was like the people that, that get the most patents filed are like, they're not specialists, like in one field, they're specialists in, in like at least two, I think. Mm. Uh, those are the people that like disproportionately are uh, filing for more patents and, and by proxy, you would assume innovating much more. Right. And actually, so both the labs I worked at at Stanford, two of like extremely successful scientists, um, one of whom was my mentor, Chris Contact. And what Chris did, um, he literally, he's like one of the greatest guys. And he literally tells a story just like this. Um, so he had this huge innovation that uh, I believe he created the small animal imaging lab at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And so this patent eventually, I think netted Stanford, like somewhere around like the hundred million, you know, wow. it was like, there was some, there's there like, and the way I found this out was there was this little, Chris, is, he's so great. So I was in his office one day and there's this little, like, kind of like trophy thing, like, in the, you know, one of those like little plaques. Yeah. I was like, oh, like Chris, what's, what's this for? He's like, oh, you know, it was, it was this patent hall of fame thing. And he's like, oh, my patent, it was like, we were, we were third. And the first two were like, uh, were Paige and Bryn from Google. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> he was like, they didn't show up, but it was, it was cool. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so this patent was, was crazy successful. And, and Chris was at a, a really fantastic career i think he he's the head of like a department now 
Um, but all he did, and he tells a story this way, was they were they were looking at like they had this bioluminescent bacteria, right? And so what they did, they they put it under as a proof of concept. They put it under like he went to Safeway and he gets like his chicken breast. And then they put the, the bioluminescent bacteria under the chicken breast and basically put it in like a black box with a camera. And then they like take a long exposure photo and you can see it glowing. And so they, they just took that, it was very like such a simple idea, you know, from, especially from like a photography perspective, like, mm. Anyone, <laughs> like what you do, you want to take a picture of something with a low signal. What do you do? You, you open the aperture and you take a long exposure photo. Easy. Mm-hmm. And you want to, you know, you put it in a black box so there's not any noise. Um, but when you apply that to biology and to like small animal imaging, what, what people were doing I don't know if this this gets the podcast like blacklisted somewhere, but basically like what people were doing before is say you want to run like you want to see the way, ideally you want to see the way the body reacts to a certain drug or or thing, right? But you can't just like, (laughs) I can't just be like, you know, take five people off the street and like, hey, like come try this drug, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It was like so far later, like what you have to do first, you, you, you get all the like biochemical, like basic stuff and you, you run studies with like bacteria and E. coli and yeast. Um, and if things look really good and interesting, then you, you see how it affects mice. And so what people had to do before was you, so say you want to see like the time course of a certain thing, like you, you give them the drug. I was working with um, celestial. It was like a extract from this, uh, the thunder God vine. It's like this Chinese medicine mm. thing. It was very cool. Like it had all these like anti-cancer effects and like anti-Alzheimer's, very cool little small molecule. Um, or yeah, celestial was a, was a small molecule. And um, so if you want to see the effect over a time course, you have to take all these mice and you have to euthanize them at each time point, mm. you know? So if you want to do five mice for each time point, you want to do three, four times, you know, you, it's, well, it's a lot of mice. <laughs> it's a lot of mice. Yeah, and yeah. like, fuck man, like emotionally for me, like, fuck dude, that like, that hurts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. And like, like you do it in a way where it's like humane, mm. but still like, like it's, it's just rough emotionally. And like, also, like, it's, it's resource intensive as well. Like, there's, there's a case for it made at many points. And so what you could do with this, so you could, you could make these transgenic mice for whatever you're interested in. So we were looking at um, hemoxygenase 1. And so now you make it so that when the mouse expresses HO1, it also expresses this, this protein that grows, right? We were working with um, luciferase. And then you give them just when you want to see like how much they're expressing it, you give them a little injection of uh, luciferin, this thing that like cleaves the luciferase, it makes it glow, like it activates it basically. Mm-hmm. And 
you just put them in the black box, put them under uh, anesthetic. You, you take the long exposure thing and that's it. Like, that's it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so like all of a sudden now you can like keep these mice alive and like run a better study because they're all the same mice, right? Like, and you can still kind of study whatever you want. So like, this was a huge innovation in like the world of biology. And, but, but all it came from was from like this, just applying like some basic photography stuff to like biology, you know? Um, and the other guy I worked with, um, Axel Brunger. So he was, his field was um, protein x-ray crystallography. And so the idea is proteins are, proteins form these different shapes, right? They're a long chain of amino acid and immediately they're exposed to a solvent. They, they start to fold into these shapes mm. and they only do things basically based on the shape they're in. Um, in addition, a lot of the, um, when they misfold, they can start to like clump together and aggregate. And then theory goes that like they can start to cause all sorts of like nasty stuff. Like if you look at like Alzheimer's or ALS, you look at the brains of people that have, that have had them, you see like these aggregations of, uh, in Alzheimer's it's amyloid beta, um, in ALS it's, it's um, alpha-synuclein, but like it, it really seems, it's, it's a hallmark of the disease that you see these aggregations and hence people assume that the aggregates are causing them as well. Um, so hence it's really important to like understand, to, to know what shape these proteins are in, because ideally, you know, if we could keep them in the proper shapes, you would theorize that, you know, boom, we can solve Alzheimer's and, you know, all these neurodegenerative diseases that, and maybe many more. The problem is they're so small that it's not even theoretically possible to like look at it with like a normal microscope. Like just the way the physics works with light, it's, it's not even theoretically possible, you know? But so what you can do, again, this, this crazy innovation, you can shoot, if you crystallize the protein, so you get it to like, basically a crystal is like a solid state pattern of like the protein is in one shape and it's stacked with like more shapes and all these different directions, right? Yeah. And so that, that's funny because like as, as much of a, and it even sounds scientific, right? Protein extra crystallography. Yep. The process of, of crystallizing the proteins is literally like you just throw some random shit in there and hope it works. <laughs> it's totally like we have no idea what we're doing. Um, <laughs> but so you get the you get the protein to crystallize and you just shoot this super powerful x-ray at it. And then it will def it will form this diffraction pattern, right? There will be these spots that it because the the protein has crystallized into this pattern, it kind of amplifies the signal in these different ways. And so you can take that diffraction pattern, you do, it's called like a Fourier transform, like essentially some crazy math on that yeah. diffraction pattern. And then you can extrapolate from that, like the shape of a struct of the protein at like, uh, at an angstrom level, which uh, I forget, I forget what scale it is, but it's, 
it's extremely small. <laughs> it's literally, you know, it's on the level of like, you see where the hydrogens are, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, but his innovation with that was, it was just an idea from, I believe, um, from like metalworking. Like they, there's this thing they would do of, uh, man, this has been a long time since I explained this, of like, basically you would, I think you, you'd temper something, right? So say you're making a sword and to make it stronger or more brittle, I forget the exact things, but basically you heat it up. And so all the molecules are like moving around more and more and more. And then you like throw it in some water and, and cool it down. And because like they were really hot before, they expand. And then when they, they shrink down, they form into this like little bit more compact structure and hence it becomes stronger. And I believe in the, the metalworking stuff, you do that multiple times usually. And so his idea was basically, if we do that for, so you would have these like protein structures, right? Or like the assumed protein structure, but you wouldn't, oh, it's called annealing. So you would have, you have the protein structure that you think it is, but you're not sure. Mm. You have no way to validate it, right? And so his innovation, which was like a huge deal, was basically you do a simulated annealing. Like in the computer, you essentially heat up the molecules and then you cool them down so they, they move around a little bit. And then basically you could use that to generate this, this score on how accurate like the structure was, like in comparison to like, um, what the structure would be after you, you know, heat it up and cool it down again. Um, and it's called like the R free. And so that was like a huge innovation there, but that, that completely changed the field of protein X-ray crystallography. And hence like a, really a foundation of a lot of like our biological understanding, you know, today, but he didn't come up with anything new. Right. He just took this idea in this different discipline and he applied it to something else. And, and no one had ever thought of, you know, putting those two together. But that was an enormous innovation. Right. And so, like, there are all these brilliant ideas that people have in all these different disciplines, especially the movement disciplines and like ideas and perspectives. And as we train them and expose ourselves to them, like, you never know when you're going to have one of those like cross pollinations, you know? And yeah, it seems like, um, in the, in terms of like innovation research coming up with like something new, right? Like talking like, and maybe you can say like movement research, there's this yeah. element, there's this element of, um, exploration and tinkering right and as you mentioned yeah. like a lot a lot of that comes from like this cross-pollination of could be like different ideas from different like movement disciplines or maybe like an idea from something that's traditionally not thought of as as movement yeah. based and then you're you're just applying it into like yeah. your 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 movement practice but could maybe yeah. would could you speak a bit about like you know maybe in your current practice at the moment because because i think for 
maybe a lot of people with their movement practice, like a lot of it is very structured. It's very programmed, you know, like it's very common, mm. you know, you get given something and like your learning is through like doing the thing. And I know you've spoken about this, I think on one of your videos, I, which, uh, I think is really good for people to watch is like this whole thing about the secret source being volume, right? And it's just like the core core thing for yeah. for yeah. for development, right? Um, but uh, maybe uh, alternatively, in in the case of where you're trying to maybe try something new or f- find out something new, like do you make specific time in your practice to just like explore and try and combine different ideas and if you do like what does that what does that look like say because coming from me my right mine training I I, I do have a teacher and I've a, I've a, I get programming from from him and then say when I practice cap, capoeira like a lot of it is prescribed by the teacher in the class right and I have le- mm-hmm. like learnings within those parameters but i i don't yeah. really go and like tinker that much right to go oh i'm mm-hmm. just gonna try and combine this with this yeah yeah um yeah so i actually um great question so i actually really like to program movement research like even Honestly, like even sometimes with, with beginners. So what does, yeah, what does that sort of look like? Because, you know, the common thing would be like for beginners, you know, everything is so, so new. Like, do they know what the hell is happening? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, that's a good point. And so I think with like the way Edo structures things, right. It's like, um, isolate, integrate, improvise. Like that's, that's the mantra, you know? And so hence, like, and, and the kind of, like, <laughs> the, the implied background message is, that, that is sometimes explicitly stated is, you know, you don't really get to research until you have a, you, you don't know what you're doing. And hence, you don't get to research yet. And when you figure it out, then, like, maybe you earn the right to, like, you know, do some research. And... I really like, I really one think that's extreme and like not the best way to do things. On the other end, you have people that like are just like so on like the self-taught train. You know, they're just like, I'm just gonna like do things by myself. And I think both of those are pretty bad, you know? Like I, I think it's probably better to learn from a teacher than to just do things by yourself, um, even if it's like so constrained. But like, I think the best way to do things is like to have that structure to be able to like, to be plugged in to like the learnings of the culture of whatever you're, you're, you're doing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I really like to start people from the get-go if possible with the idea that nothing is fixed and that like, you can make some of these moves yourself. Like there's nothing about like a move I made that like, ah, like that makes it a move because I made it because I have been training, for, you know, so I've been Edo Portal certified, right? <laughs> that will get you blacklisted for sure. 
<laughs> you know, like there's, there's nothing like it was all shit. And so like you can literally from day one, right? So like an easy thing people can do, like you spend 10 minutes, like what are, and people say this one all the time. What, how many different ways can you like go to the floor? Mm-hmm. You know, like you could do that every day, every day and, and come up with new things, you know? And that might be hard as a beginner to like really be able to like, mm really innovate there and come up with something new every day, but you can still do it. And being exposed to that idea early, I think is really important to like, and, and just cause it's also a practice, right? Mm-hmm. It's a practice of tinkering of like exploration and creativity. And that's a skill. Not only is that a skill that you can build, that is an extremely important skill you can build that is arguably one of the most important things you can you can do um yeah and even for like jujitsu right like um you know you can go in every day and just learn the move they taught you but also from a pretty early stage you can also just you know you you go with a part you have a good partner you can trust and like you can like hey like let's let's work on things like this mm-hmm. You just literally say like, okay, there's this one, you don't even have to say anything. You just roll and you see something that happens, right? Something either like you catch them with, or especially if they catch you with something or they stop something you're doing and you literally just go back. So, and, and the reason I mention this is because you don't have to have the knowledge to go in with any agenda of like mm-hmm. what's most important. You know, if, if I need to work on my Toriando by like, uh, you know, punching the underhook in this way because I just watched the Leander Lowe study and blah, 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 you know, you don't have to do any of that. Like, obviously that's good, but you can literally, you just, you just do it and you see where did something break down? And then you just, you go back with your partner and you just say, okay, so I did this and then you did that. And, and let's just see like how, how are you able to like, you know, to sweep me here, you know, and like, how are the different ways that like I could get this pass or I could do this move and you just try it with them, you know, and you see all these different variations of like, oh, what if I put my hand here? What if I like cross face here? What if I, um, what if I disengage, you know, like what if I disengage and then like switch sides? There, there are all these different things and like, even if you don't come up with anything new there mm. or, or don't come up with anything that's new for yourself, which is unlikely, I would bet that's very unlikely, even for, for a very new person, you're going to start to understand the sport at, at a level in a way that's going to give you really high retention because you're, you are running the experiment, right? You don't have to, it's always going to be easier to retain something that, that you have tried and done yourself than something that someone else is teaching you that mm. you have to do it this way. Right. But, but there's some, yeah, there's some prompts there, right. And the reflection steps that you're saying there. And it's like, um, mm. taking it away from like the earlier example that you gave where, you know, a common one, it's just like, how many, how many ways can you get down onto the floor and, and stand back up again? Right. Like, yeah. I think everyone's kind of messed around a little bit with that movement task. And, you know, my observations, so. 
<laughs> my observation, <laughs> at least sometimes whether I've uh, tried introducing that quite early with people is, um, huh. you know, they, they have about four or five different ways. Right. And then yeah. it's kind of like, that's it. Oh, they kind of gets, yeah. kind of get yeah. stuck. And then it just keeps yeah. on getting, getting repeated. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, yeah. so yeah. Um, maybe what I'm keen to hear from you is then how can we act as like as a good facilitator and as good coach to help with that process to then for them to find out some new ways or to become more aware that they keep on repeating like the same squat pattern down because <laughs> <laughs> that's like you know, the, the most comfortable where you know the, 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 right, right, right. the aim of this task is um, to try to explore a few more new movement patterns which then is sometimes the common thing going oh they just don't have the you know the broad sort of terminology and they're too early for it you know so that that might be one angle to take of it but if you're saying you yeah. know it can be actually very important to introduce this quite early on then yeah what's what's your approach there yeah yeah no totally and that's that's a great point i think that's that's often can be what happens <laughs> for sure <laughs> but um you know even that right like that's not a failure you know like even if they they come up with four or five different ways like those are four or five different ways say they come up with four or five different things and then they can't come up with anything else they just keep repeating worst worst cases they're repeating things that they don't know they're repeating things. <laughs> but um they come up with four or five different things like those are things that they most likely had some awareness of before, but like that awareness was, was not at a strong level, you know? And so just by doing that, just by like bringing that back to like the forefront of things that they're aware that they can do, that's really important, you know? And again, like getting people started on, you, you could think of it, you could think of it as a skill like, like hand balancing except it's a more meta skill, right? Is how do you practice learning new things? How do you create, how do you do movement research? Like that itself is a skill. Um, and at the beginning, like you mentioned, like people don't have many, a lot of people don't have many like movement tools, say, right? Like they don't have an awareness of rolling. They don't have an awareness of inversions. They don't have an awareness of um, cartwheels, acrobatics, um, soft acrobatics, like <laughs> much of anything, right? Those are all missing. And because those tools and perspectives are missing, their awareness of the perspectives that they can solve the problem of how do I get to the floor are extremely limited, right? It's like, what are the ways I've seen? Okay, I can squat. Okay, maybe I can do a lunge. <laughs> maybe I can do a push-up. <laughs> but, um, you know, even with that, like, it's just with that. Right? It takes some awareness to, to, to make this. And certainly, like, that's, that's where having an instructor is, like, so helpful, right? Because you see, it's total game changer. But... Say you have like just those few, how do I, I could start with a squat and then do a push up, and that can be how I get to the floor, right? And now, boom, there's another one, you know? 
And how can I combine my squat and push up in a way that's going to smoothly take me to the floor? Mm. You know, and now maybe that's a different thing. Could I do this on like a one arm push up? Can I do this like push up to a squat and then the floor? Like just messing with the order already gives you like, already gives you those combinations, right? You're already, you know, geometrically increasing like the possibilities you have. Um, yeah, but, but, but yeah, like I, I think it should be approached like a skill. And, and though it doesn't have as much, it's, it's a meta skill, right? So it's mm. not like you can say like, I'm this good at movement research. Um, but like, it's extremely important. So, so I would say for, for people like that and people that are going to watch this or listen to it and, and maybe try this, don't, you know, don't assume, like if you didn't come up with anything new, don't assume you, you failed. Like you succeeded by, you succeeded by trying, right? You succeeded by like working these neural pathways um, and getting, you know, doing movement in the process, right? And, and just starting that struggle of how would I come up with a new move? That's important. Mm, yeah, something that I um, really appreciate from my observations from working with uh, different teachers and seeing like um, information presented, say in movement, you can call it like, yeah, movement research tasks or like ones where you're try just trying to like, um, explore a, a bit more open movement patterns right is like this concept of uh like layering via rules and constraints and yeah. like one thing i yeah noticed was it, you know you'd start off with a task like this and then then there's a new layer because there's a new rule right and then that changes it and then there's another rule and there's always like new rules or something until you got this like ridiculous layer of rules where the only yeah. part of your a body might just be like your shoulder that you can use and you have to fig figure it out and that's something that yeah i've come to really appreciate um in terms of one sometimes when messing around with myself but then particularly very effective when uh helping yeah instruct others to to explore yeah totally yeah and actually it's a really good point that like you don't need a teacher for that either you know, you can come up with those constraints yourself. And I think that's a, that's a really great way. Obviously it's, it's going to be better with the teacher as, as both things are, but um, you can make up those constraints yourself randomly and that alone. Okay. How do I squat to the floor? But like, maybe I can only use one leg or like maybe, um, maybe my right foot can't touch the ground you know, as I do some sort of squat, can I squat to the floor without my right foot ever touching the ground? Boom, there's another one, right? Mm. Um, maybe you use your hands to do it. Maybe you use a single leg squat. Maybe you use like single leg squat and like your knee or shin on the other leg. You know, there could be, maybe that's, that's five new moves, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's a really great point. Those constraints are really powerful. And it's something actually that lately I've been thinking about a lot because um, I've, I've been this, this last movement intensive I was at was with um, this Ferris enemy Terra Nova group. Mm -hmm. And 
they're basically, I'll, I'll call them a bunch of dancers. Um, and they, they've gone more in a movement direction, but they're all like very high level. I, I think they're almost all professional dancers if, if they're not all professional dancers. Um, and one of the things I was noticing like with that, I was just noticing the commonality between like them and also like in jujitsu, like, like one of the things I noticed is like, if you take a beginner, if you take a beginner, they're just bad in, in any situation you put them in, right? Mm. But you take someone at a higher level and if you force them into a certain situation, like I, the, the word that's been popping up in my mind about it is like putting on chains. Like if you, you put them on, you put them in change, like chains at a, at a theoretical level, right? You, you give them these constraints, you know, you have to do, you're going to go from here to there, but you have to do cartwheels and you're looking at your partner all the time, mm. right? Like th there's a, there's a task, but there's some heavy constraints on how you can do that task. Um, so at a high level or people at a, a reasonably high level, like they could do the task quite well, right? If, if they're a good dancer, you say, you go from here to there, do it beautifully, whatever, you know, it's going to look great. Mm -hmm. But if you give them that constraint, you have to do it with cartwheels looking at your partner. A lot of them, it's going to start to break down. Right, you're not going to be able to tell that a lot of people are really good dancers, you mm -hmm. know. But at like that's sort of like one magnitude up, I would say. But another magnitude up, same thing in jujitsu. So, so um, this I notice all the time. It's like every every time I go to jujitsu, because like some people, like white belts, blue belts, whatever. Like I'll be drilling with them. There's a guy um not too long ago and i think he was a white belt he was a white belt and we were working on this move together and like i hadn't seen the move before and i was like kind of like forgetting the move and he was like oh you know like put this foot here he was like even coaching me through the move a little bit as we were drilling you know and so and he was and as he was he was drilling it like he was doing it quite well like just about as well as i was really mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this, this guy's quite good. And so we go to roll and, and rolling is like, now there are far less constraints, right? It's not like you have to do this move. Mm. Um, you can now do whatever you want. And as soon as we go to roll, I just fucking murdered this. <laughs> it went from like, we were at similar sort of levels in this constraint thing of like, you mm. have to do this move to the reality when you take those chains off that, I can now do anything. He can now do anything. It was completely magnitudes different, mm. you know? And then, but I think at another magnitude above that is like the people that are really high level. So a lot of these guys at, at the Ferris Enemy Terra Nova, you put the chains on, you put them in a constrained movement task and they're still really good. Mm. You know, and in any, you constrain them in any way and like, they can still do a great job. And what do you think is like the, yeah, just the difference, just like the hours of, of additional practice on it or, yeah. You, you know, I, I think that's going to take some more processing actually. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my guess right now, my best guess would, I mean, one is it's just a magnitude of, of skill difference, right? So a lot of these guys, the Ferris Enemy Terra Nova, like, you know, they've been formally studying dance for like, like they, they have dance degrees, you know, they went yeah. to school for dance. <laughs> it, it's a different sort of game than like, oh, you know, like <laughs> I do locomotion and like movement class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like a different fucking thing. <laughs> and yeah, so so there's there's definitely one level of as far as like how it happens, it it seems to be just at a level of like volume and exposure, right? Mm. Just super high level. In jujitsu, it's like the high level black belts versus like, you know, blue, purple belts that are that are pretty good versus white belts, right? Um I I would I would guess like as far as my my current like way of thinking about it is like because mm. for me I had some like huge weaknesses you know like my jaw flexion is still horrible it's, it's getting better but it's horrible <laughs> it's going from like horrendous to like bad yep and um, like literally I think that my right ankle is is the worst one. The only guy I met with less dorsiflexion than than I have, literally his his this is his strength coach Greg Greg Knuckles, um, mm-hmm. really smart guy. Everyone should should check him out. His, his website I believe is Stronger by Science. Yep. Um, and he said his ankle was was literally like severed and then reattached. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only guy. But but so for me the ankles and the toes like the flexibility there was like a huge weakness mm-hmm. and it was like the focus of like both of the kind of intensives I did was like just hammering they were like from the beginning they were like we think this is a weakness for most dancers and they like hammered us off it you know <laughs> and I'm over there like looking like I'm like a fucking like I've never done this shit before, you know, because I <laughs> my toes can't handle this and my squat is you know, mm. terrible. Um, so my current way of thinking about it is like, okay, like what if we start thinking a little more about like, yeah, like what are your what are your biggest weaknesses? What are the the weakest links? And then like continuously like knock that out 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 and at the same time like building your ability to like improvise and connect right in the world of dance it would be connecting moves and jujitsu would be like sparring um and my thinking would be that if you can eliminate all of those weaknesses and have the ability to connect all of the skills that you have and like the movement capacities you have that like then we would be able to some degree to engineer like the level of movement proficiency that like these high high level people have Uh, well this almost goes to this idea of you know this classic idea of like movement generalism right and um if you if you change some of the constraints or in the environment are you still being 
able to perform it with some level of proficiency and what you're sort of indicating here is like some of these guys who are super high level right yeah you know you put in the thing that they got to do it on a table blindfolded or something and just because <laughs> they, they've got that lived experience like they're, they're still able to to do it right whereas um at least in my experience so far is that uh like everything that I've learned and practiced is still very like situation specific or like that, that coordination is almost very like context specific. And so yeah, sometimes you get like some low level crossover and transfer where, or, or at least maybe like some sense of confidence that if, even if it's like somewhat new, like, let's just say like, I don't really rock climb, but because I'm, you know, somewhat strong and have a pulling practice, right. you know, I can, I can kind of jump into that, but you yeah. know, like I'm not like, um, not gonna completely die like most people might do when they start right. rock climbing but right. um i mean but another example might be like the handstand right then be practicing mm. for a while somewhat proficient on it but then you might change it to be a bit of a different surface well even yeah. if it's just a bit more elevated and then suddenly you're like yeah. what the hell is going on like you can't transfer it there um and i think that's even more the case when it is a more uh, complicated movement type pattern and uh, involving a bit more of a coordination that I, yeah, I really struggle. Like I can say this, even like applying some of the locomotion mo uh, movements that I've um, been practicing almost like sometimes in this isolated way and trying to apply it in like the more open holders in, in the capoeira practice. And then you're just like, shit, like can't, can't yeah, can't yeah. do that right and then so i'm really questioning yeah how does this um this notion of movement generalism you know like how applicable is it or is it just really just that that those upper echelons of where you've just practiced so 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 much like yeah. these dance dance guys that you even get some sort of yeah. sense of it and for all us mere models where we just have a few hours uh, you know per yeah. day that we yeah. can spend on it yeah. it's not gonna happen yeah I mean, with a few hours per day, I think you can do, you can get to an extremely high level. Um, with one hour a day, maybe maybe less so. But a few hours, we're we're talking big things over over years. Mm. Um, but but yeah, like one of the one of the things that like I've started to notice, like if we take like the the Rhoda example, um, is like I think as you build more skill, you could get to a point where you can win by forcing the game to go in your direction. You know, so, so for instance, like in jujitsu, um, if we roll, say, say like a few years ago, right? I had like no guard whatsoever, but like if we rolled, you would never maybe be able to make me play guard, right? I, I would make sure that I play, you know, you wouldn't be able to like, if we're, we're actually like rolling, starting from standing, like the way you would in the match, I I'm, would be able to funnel my game in a way where it would completely avoid my weaknesses, you know, and be able to use the skill to do that. There's, a, there's an example of um, a crazy high level example. Have you heard of this guy, Nicky Rod? No, I haven't. He's um, he made some big waves in the jiu-jitsu world in uh, at the last ADCC. So I think that was 
2019. Um, but so this guy, basically, he was a blue belt with like a year and a half of training in jiu-jitsu. And he went into ADCC and beat some... ADCC is like the Olympics of, of grappling and jiu-jitsu. Mm. And so he went into ADCC as a blue belt and beat people. Like ADCC, it's like the highest level black belts, right? Which, mm. which generally... You know, if you were to break it down into belt levels, it would be another two to three belt levels up equivalent from like normal black belts. Like it's, they, they would crush a normal black belt, right? Yeah. And um, so this guy, he went in with 18 months of training and he placed second and beat guys that had won ADCC before. It was just, it was like this, this absurd performance. And so what, what happened was like, he was a, he had been like a wrestler, I think his whole life, um, high level wrestler. Mm -hmm. And then, so his game at ADCC was start standing. He would pass the guard. So, so no one could, could wrestle with him. Right. He would, he would beat everyone at wrestling. And then he got really good at guard passing. So he could pass the guard. And then he got really good at back takes and finishing people from the back. So like at no point, like he was good enough at every point he could force people into his game. Mm. Like no one made him play guard because no one could take him down. So he was able to like avoid his weaknesses. Right. And, and hence he was able to get a silver medal. Like this was, it was insane. Um, but like, yeah, like that's, that's sort of, you could always play your game in that sort of way right mm -hmm. where you're like certainly once you get to that level no one's at to a reasonable degree no one's going to make him play guard right mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just at, at a normal gym like it's just not going to happen he's not going to get any practice out of it so like what it takes is like yeah having to like either put those constraints on yourself or like having a teacher to like put those constraints on you mm -hmm. force you hey like you're good at wrestling Let's get you, you, you can pass the guard. Now let's, let's get you to play guard. Yeah. Now let's get you to like, to do sweeps and like work on your escapes, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about like these, these constraints yeah. in that way. Yeah. It can be a different way to approach a practice. Um, yeah. And I mean, cause I think we've all, kind of aware of it as well like our, our, our weaknesses and know like that is important to to work on but then you know there's the emotional side where if you're good at something after a while you it feels good to be good oh right you know and it feels good to be good. <laughs> you have you have to kind of almost balance your practice with going you know the stuff which feels feels really good to be proficient in whilst because if you just worked 100 percent on all stuff that you sucked at right it's not a quite quite it's a nice good. feeling yeah. as yeah. as well yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely yeah there's always like a balance right because like the highest priority for anyone i really think is like consistency in the long term mm. you know and so like <laughs> okay i got another story for you so there's a guy <laughs> there's a guy at the academy that um 
let's say one of the academies I've trained at, and um, he was, I, I'm trying to balance how many details to give out here, but basically he was leading the competition class, right? Mm-hmm. He's a very good high level black belt and had um, recently switched to this gym to like really push it because these guys are like the highest level in, in certainly the area and, and actually in the world as well. Um, and so I was on the competition team for, for a few months. And so he was running it and, and the stance was, and, and he literally said this one day, he goes, we're not here to have fun. Like if you're, if you want to have fun, go to the, go to the recreation, class. go to the fundamentals class, go to the other classes. Hmm. We're here to work, you know, like this is, this is our profession, you know, this, this is what, this is what we do. And, um, you know, he was very serious about it. He worked really hard out. It was very, you know, very serious. He studied, he was studying a lot of matches. Like I would talk to him. He was like, he'd be like, oh yeah, you know, check out, you know, this match with, you know, so-and-so and, you know, look into footage of this guy and very knowledgeable guy, smart guy. But, you know, this is the, the cool thing of, you know, more longevity in the sport as years go by, like he, he quit, like he quit professional yeah. You know, and it's like, meanwhile, and so I got to see like who stayed, who stayed, who quit, who made the most progress. The people that stayed, the people who made the most progress were the people that stayed and the people Mm -hmm. that were going like pretty much every class. There were really two of those people. And both of them, one of them was like, he was like the the class clown equivalent, you know, like he was the guy that was like making jokes all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, and the other guy also like, wasn't taking it very seriously. He wouldn't like crack jokes, like out loud with everyone, but like, like not during the classes. Cause this was the other thing. This was the thing that drove me crazy was he would say, Oh, we're not here to have fun. And so like during the sparring section of the class, during the sparring section of the class, there's no talking. Hmm. There's no coaching. There's no cheering each other on. Like, it's you, you just fucking roll, you know? And, yeah, I hate that because I'm like, one, how are we going to learn things if we can't talk about, like, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm rolling with all these, like, high-level guys. Like, hmm. can you tell me, like, what I did wrong? Like, I know you can tell me what I did wrong. Why don't you? <laughs> it take you 10 seconds, you know? Yeah. Like, and it's like, instead, the culture is there's no talking mm-hmm. and there's no joking. There's no, there's no fun. There's no, there's no music for a lot of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot less fun. And there, when you don't have that and it's just work and maybe you don't win the competition you hoped you were going to win, what's left for you? You know, there's, there's, unless you've got some sort of like complex of like why you, you need to win in the sport, like. A, a rational person wouldn't, wouldn't keep doing it, yeah. you know? Um, so it's, I think it's so, so important to like have fun and like enjoy the, the things you're doing. And so like, yeah, like to your point on like, you know, just doing the things you suck at every day. Totally, man. Like, I, th- I think this, this could be like a powerful paradigm to work in and, and certainly one I'm going to work much more in 
but um you know that always has to be balanced with like the highest priority which is like what can you maintain over the long term which mm-hmm. is generally and the biggest thing for that is like enjoying the practice you know how do you how do you enjoy the practice um yeah i'm interested to ask you about how you might um help uh this with clients when you teach people and and say you know they're more beginning with the practice as well because i think this is one challenge we all face as as teachers right especially at the start is this habit forming is this setting it up for consistency over the long term because it is something a little bit new maybe maybe they do suck at just like almost everything because everything is like novel as well so you know are there certain ways in which you deliver your your um your coaching or you have your your training structures to yeah. help with trying to yeah again set that environment up right so that they're going to be like okay cool keep on continuing with the practice for a long time not just for you know yeah a, mu- a month totally yeah I, I think there's like a it's almost like a benchmark for me like at this point I noticed pretty early in my teaching career of like people can do just about anything for like three months mm-hmm. and almost like to a T like at the three month point, like you just see like a whole bunch of people drop off, you know? Cause it's like, I think a lot of people can suffer through three months of doing something, but after that it's, you know, kind of back to a lot, a lot of which back to what you're doing. Um, and I think a lot of getting over that is like finding something you enjoy. And as, as teachers, like we have to think of like, how do we create that for people? Like both the enjoyment and like the intrinsic motivation, you know? And then, and frankly, this, this is an area that, um, I want to study a lot more and learn a lot more about. Um, so I, was, I, I have signed up for a psychology of coaching course mm. for the next semester, but I might, it's just so many things going on. I don't know. But anyway, it's like, yeah, value this to the extent I, I do want to definitely learn more about it. But um, there's some interesting ideas. And, and I, I took a sports psychology course, graduate sports psychology course last semester, last year. Um, as well and so so one thing is like the optimal theory of motor learning I think is like super important here because like that contribution to like the motor learning world was essentially all about intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. you know and then and then it comes down to okay how do we support intrinsic motivation um Intrinsic motivation, intentional focus. Um, And so the intrinsic motivation stuff was like really based on expectancies. And there was a lot of research to to support all of these. So it was expectancies and autonomy, you know? So how do we increase people's expect, expectancies are like how well you expect to do on a certain task, Mm. right? So like, and if you haven't read this paper, anyone that hasn't read this paper, I highly, like highly, highly recommend you do, especially like any, any movement teachers, like you got to read this. 
Is, um, it, is this almost like, you know, if you outline a goal and your expectations towards like achieving that goal or, yeah, maybe if you could expand it more about this term, ex expectancies. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's, if that would quite be, fall into this category. I think it's in the, in this research, it was used more in like a, a little bit of a shorter term thing generally. Um, I, I think that would still fall into the category, but basically expectancies are like, you know, so, so in the research, one of the things that, that people gave is like, it's a golf task, right? And so, okay, so I give you the club and the ball and say, okay, you have to hit it. Like there's this, there's this little circle over there. And if you hit it within that circle, that's good. That's, that's a good performance. If you can hit it in that like tiny circle for one group uh, or the other group got like a really big circle. So one group it's, so, so here's the interesting thing, right? They're both getting the same task because they're, they're, they're trying to hit it into the hole, right? Yep. But, uh, oh, there's a, there's a term for this, but it's a term I'm forgetting. But basically, they're being given different expectations of like what a good performance is. And hence, their expectancies of how well they can do on that task relative to others is different, right? So I give you, I tell you, like you hit it in a small circle, that's a good job. And you're thinking, shit, everyone else can do that little circle. Like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't think I can. Hmm. That's lower expectancies versus I tell you, oh, if you hit it within this big circle, that's a good performance. Most people can, you know, they'll hit it somewhere on the edge of this big circle. Hmm. And you're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I could totally, yeah, I can do better than that, you know? that higher expectancies you think you can do well in the task and hence that has a really good effect on intrinsic motivation mm. um the other big factor they were they were talking about for the intrinsic motivation side was um autonomy so like the more autonomy people have right like the less it's like and then this kind of comes back to where we we're talking about with the movement research the more you feel you have control over your own actions like the better mm. So for instance, if you come into class and <laughs> let's say it's like very Edo Portal oriented structure of, you know, you must do this this way. You must do this this way. You must do this this way. And the way I showed it is the correct way. And so if you do something different, like you push your foot there, that's a mistake. You know, you put your hand here, that's a mistake. I showed it this way, right? That's like a, um, the, the technical term is like controlling language versus like the other side is autonomy supportive language, right? Of like the, the example being, say I show you like a, a jujitsu move. If I say, I show you the same move, but I can explain it in two different ways, right? I can say, Okay, you have to, you must place your first hand here. It's going to be a supinated grip. You're going to break their posture. You're going to, you're going to use your legs, boom, break their posture all the way down. You can keep them there. Then you're going to place the other hand. It's going to be palm down. You're going to grip their collar. You can adjust, you're going to adjust the right hand twice to get it deeper. And then you're going to pull the elbows in and you're going to cinch the wrist together. 
and you have to do it you have to do it exactly this way in this order right mm -hmm. i could show you the same move and i could just tell you here is the best way i found to do this right mm -hmm. and now the best way i found to do this is you know i'm going to put this in here and then you know they're you know, going to do this blah, blah blah so i like to break their posture using the legs then you know you need to get the second hand here because you need to cut off both carotid arteries so then i like to place this hand with the palm down right you show the same thing and they've done a lot of research on this and what's kind of surprising is yeah like it has a big positive effect when you use that autonomy supportive language even though you're showing like the same thing people do better and they learn faster and same mm. thing with the golf example when you give them that big circle you tell them that big circle is a good performance and they're thinking to themselves ah yeah like i'm gonna nail this you know mm. they do better they they literally hit the ball closer to the hole they had the same exact task, right? Like it, it's, that one's crazy to me. They had the same exact task to hit the ball there, but just expecting that they could do better than other people, than, than the norm say. Hmm. They did better on it immediately and they learned faster, you know? So that's certainly two like clear, easy things we can do as coaches that like, are very much supported by the science and the literature. Yeah, those are interesting. Like I can see, um, getting um, a clear sense of even with with uh, adapting the communication right for this uh, promoting autonomy right. And um, yeah, I think you know this has become becoming more of a thing as well uh, in in teaching in general to to promote like more autonomy within the student right but then this yeah. this 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 thing around expectancies is is still maybe something that's yeah um you know how how do you uh practically apply a concept like this to to your students to to help them uh, with uh, better learning outcomes yeah yeah I mean, one of, one of the things, this, this kind of ties back to the movement research, right? Like that's one of the reasons I like to incorporate that movement research so early um, is like, I feel that gives people like a sense of autonomy, like mm -hmm. is, is from the get-go knowing that like, okay, this isn't just like this structured set number of moves that I can absorb this is a body of knowledge that I can add to and having that understanding from the get-go I think is really important even if people even if people they come up with five moves yeah. <laughs> there's only, only three moves I, I was able to think of you know still like just mm. inserting that perspective mm. Are you that saying with the expectancies that. like saying within that example right that it's almost like if you were if you were if they thought that maybe they could do like 10, right. And you were like, Oh, but like six would be like a good amount. Then yeah. that would actually positive, positive, positively motivate them to do better at that task. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. If you tell them like most people can only think of two, they're like, oh, I could do at least three. Right. Yeah. And so the, the research has, has shown that that to be helpful in a number of studies that like we're 
were so cool to me to like read about. Mm. Um, but then here's the other thing though, is there are so many, especially of like the highest level coaches that do the opposite of that, that, that I wonder if there's something else that goes on as well. Right. So I wonder, so, so I think like, there, there are multiple explanations for this. Um, and this is an area that the research hasn't covered yet, but yeah, cause, cause say, you know, you go train with like uh, an Olympian, right? Mm. He's not going to tell you like, if you could do a tuck plunge, like that's great. Right. He's going to say, you know, my athletes are doing swallows on the rings and, and then pressing up to an inverted cross, you know, <laughs> that will get you a gold medal. You know, yep. like you need to do. So, so there might be something there as far as like, this is what happens on a short term, perhaps at a low level. Right. And, and maybe like at a high level, in the long term, like there's something else that goes on. Because one of the things I expect is like, maybe, so I tell you, okay, if you come up with two things, you come up with two ways to get to the floor, that would be good. Most people can only do that. You come up with five, great. But now maybe you come in the next day and you, maybe you're like, so you did better and you, you learned those moves faster, right? But maybe you come in the next day and maybe you're a little like, okay, cool. Like I do five, like I'm already better than most people, yep. you know? And I, I wonder if like maybe in the short and medium term, that's helpful, but in the long term that that holds some people back or, mm. or holds back the people that would take it to like a really high level. Well, we, yeah, you could take the point that it's like, um, I'm already better than most people. This is just boring. Like what's the next thing? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and I asked my professor about this and, and she was like, she, she was like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's an area to be explored that I think is, is really interesting. But like, again, like the research that's been done so far has all said like the higher expectancies a lot of which can be done by literally just lying to people. Like one of the studies, they literally just like lied to people, like half of the group that like, you know, basically that, oh yeah, yeah. It was literally, they just randomly told one group, mm. which I believe is, is, I would consider a lie that like, you know, I think you would be able to, you personally would be able to do better than other people on this. They just told that to a whole group of people, right? Like individually. Mm. But of but that group, like they did better because they had higher expectancies, like even if they were lied to, you know? Mm. So it's like, there's, there's a whole bunch of like, <laughs> all, all of the research is like that. So basically anything you do that increases people's expectancies, you get better, better performance, better learning. Um, and then that feeds back to, 
better, you know, more intrinsic motivation, more focus on task goal, which virtuous cycle feeds back into like the positive, just positive things happening. More performance, more learning, more focus on task goal, more performance, more learning, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's more like that, that there is like this continuous positive feedback and that, you know, even the goalposts um, that they keep on moving, that there is still this underlying belief that, you know, you can get it. And I think that's what yeah. I experience within my practice is like, you know, let's take the handstand for example, like we all know, like, you know, your first goal is like, chest to wall and then that changes to then like 60 second freestanding then you get that and then it's like something else but then you don't keep giving up because you get this taste of it and you you kind of go oh yeah even though it's this next step i believe that i can do it because you've also seen the um effect of how a practice can accumulate to actually transform you to do it to the next stage and then maybe that's what changes into the more longer term intrinsic motivation where you're like ah i get it now this is what practice does i can keep on going yeah 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 that's a huge thing and i, I think that's that's more kind of aligned with with how i currently teach it's like i still will kind of like you know i kind of be like yeah for, for a handstand like Good is a one-arm handset, you know? And, and like a little bit, some of that like is just set by me doing a one-arm handset, you know? Mm-hmm. Like that sort of becomes a standard. But like, I try to encourage people wherever they're at, mm-hmm. you know? Like if you're if you're working against the wall, like one, like you're doing good just by like fucking working on it, you know? That's like a hell of a lot better than you were doing before you started. And, and two, like, yeah, it's, it's going to come like you're, you know, people are doing better. Like it's about the progress, you know? And so if you've done anything that causes progress, it creates progress, no matter where you are, like, I think that's a really good thing. And like, we can encourage and support and like give that positive feedback, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like there's a balance, right. Between like constantly moving the goalposts. Right. Like if you were to tell someone like, okay, you came up with like, it's really good if you can do like a chest wall handstand, like two feet from the wall. Right. And then they can do that. And then now what are you going to say? Like, actually, that's not good. Like, actually, it's good if you get one foot from the wall, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. that would throw someone off too. Right. That is, you know, after like, you know, three days of that, they're going to be like, you know, what the hell is going on? This guy's just lost to me right yeah. and so like what you say isn't actually going to have a positive effect on their expectancy so yeah. <laughs> it's complex like psychology is a very interesting field <laughs> <laughs> so um there is uh one of the area i wanted to just um discuss with you uh which is like with your um i think one of your more recent videos which is around like <laughs> injuries and a, and a methodology yeah. to approaching it yeah. um, with the injuries. And, uh, yeah. and I'd love to just um, discuss with you a bit more on, on this topic, because I think this is another area, which um, for me was really transformative, like through mm-hmm. the movement practice with my 
understanding of injuries and you know it yeah. started with the whole like johnny no knife surgery like video yeah. that i think everyone yeah. like has seen on youtube where it was just like crazy right like it blows his pack out and then mm-hmm. he's like just moving straight away and then he doesn't even have a pack but he can still do everything <laughs> and you're like whoa like that's that's nuts but then something yeah. that i've fortunately been guided on um is through like multiple injuries which have happened and then taken a more movement-based approach and after experientially like going through that going holy shit like there's actually something to this and like Mm -hmm. before i would have if something happened and there was just like some sense of pain just like completely scaled off the training right and just like more avoidance versus like the way I was guided was with more of a sense of curiosity with working with it around it, just to keep on finding ways of of moving. And then what I found was at the end of it, you know, like I didn't really lose that much strength if at all. And actually was like stronger by the end of it. And there was just this period where I had to be more mindful of my movement because that was producing pain signals. So I think it's a very, very interesting area that um, uh, I think for, anyone looking to get like and and maybe this goes back to that idea of consistency within practice especially physical practice is that injury is going to happen and this is one of probably the core skills that you need to learn to navigate within this whole field um uh more long term but maybe just for the listeners like do you just i know you have like quite a long detailed video for people but just as a summary of you know yeah, what, yeah. what the principles are that that you discuss within the video maybe take us through that yeah um yeah so <laughs> i was actually i've actually thought about like and i pulled people on this of like doing a shorter version and <laughs> trying to compress it more um but yeah so so basically the idea is like pain science. We'll see, we'll see how fast I can summarize it. And of course, like if you actually want to work with an injury, like go watch like the full video. Um, but so basically like we can use pain science, like pain science tells us that like, like the actual science, the actual research tells us that injuries are not just like structural problems, right? You don't just feel pain in your elbow because something's broken. You can feel pain in your elbow and nothing's broken. Nothing's even damaged. Your elbow can be, you know, crippled and you can feel no pain and you may feel no pain for the rest of your life, right? Like Johnny's pec insertion. It's not the whole pec is missing. He's missing. One of the insertions is torn off, (laughs) but like, he can go through the rest of his life with an enormous amount of function and no pain and who cares, right? Like if, if he goes through the rest of his life like that doing straddle punches and warm chins and all the crazy shit Johnny can do for his whole life, does it really matter that one insertion of his pec is missing? I would say absolutely not. And then vice versa imagine like your your pec or your elbow your back whatever imagine on an mri 
It's perfectly fine. But you have crippling pain. You can't do anything and you're, cripp you're in crippling pain all the time. Does it matter that, on the that the MRI showed there's nothing wrong with your back? Not really, you know, because like the, the, the pertinent thing is like the crippling pain you feel is like potentially ruining your life, you know, like is, is hugely limiting what you can do and like your quality of life. Um, so like, hence the thing we should be focusing on is the pain. And, and that's really important perspective we can take because what that allows us to do is that allows us to like give people the autonomy and the control, the locus of control to work with their own injuries, right? You don't need to, you need to go do an MRI if you want to find out like what's going on at a structural level with your back, right? But you don't need to do anything to know how much pain you're feeling. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to know constantly, right? And hence, like, you can work with that signal. And so that, that's the whole uh, conceptual theoretical base for, for my model is, okay, like, let's take that understanding. And then now, how do we, like, structure and, and formalize a practice of getting people to be able to work with their own injuries and to, like, build the proficiency to heal these injuries and regain the function by themselves, right? And, and like you mentioned, like for the consistency of a practice and just like for like quality of life for humans or, or really any animals, um, any living things, like it's really important to be able to work with injury and like understand how to work through this stuff. Um, like for example, when we thought the solution to everything was bed rest. You'd get people with an injury, you put them on bed rest, maybe they feel better for an hour. And after that, it, it starts getting really bad. Like mm -hmm. I had a client who was somewhat crippled, still, still a good, good friend. Um, he was crippled by back pain for like a decade. And the way it started, the, the initial like real cause was his back was hurting. And then he went on bed rest for three days. And like, I think when he got up, like at the end of those three days, like that was when it was like crippling, like, you know, call someone for help sort of bad, mm. you know? Um, and, and so like, yeah, the research has been very clear, like bed rest is not helpful for injury. So we, we got to work with things like with movement, with loading, loading changes tissues, right? So we got to work with loading. Um, we can use some passive modalities, anything, anything that has, anything could have a positive effect on pain if it has a positive effect really on your, like you at a mental level, right? Like if, if if you think massage is like the greatest thing and like, you know, you, you absolutely love it. Maybe you think it's remodeling all your tissues and like, you think it's the greatest thing since, you know, who knows why. And maybe that massage is going to have like a very good effect on like pain is an output of the brain, 
And so hence, like, placebo is a very powerful thing. Hmm. And like, that massage could, could work really well at like a, the level of cognition and pain. And if so, like, we'll, we'll fucking take it, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you come in with, with pain anywhere, you go do a massage and it feels better. I am not going to like cite the research and say like, ah, (laughs) you know, like that that doesn't change. No, it's like, well, it helped you feel less pain. And that's what, that's our goal. So yeah, fuck yeah. Right. And we can use that in addition with the active modalities of movement and loading that is also going to reduce pain and increase function and remodel tissues. Um, So um, the method has an acronym, which is MOVERS. So uh, M is make an assessment of cause. Um, O, observe your pain-free ability. V is sort of the crux of the method is various things may help or hinder. So from there, so you make an assessment of cause. Say, um, okay, my back started hurting. Well, or say uh, my neck started hurting. Well, okay someone was cross-facing me for like two hours last night. Right. So that was probably, and, and my neck hurts when I do this. So <laughs> when you, when you like look to the one, one direction. Yeah. 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 To the one direction. Right. Um, okay. That was the cause that makes sense. And then, and, and again, this is very much glossing over. Please don't use this as your comprehensive rehab method um, without like watching the whole thing. But Okay, so that's the cause. And that gives you an idea of like what the most sensitive areas will be, what things you should be careful with potentially, and like what things you might not have to be as careful with. Um, and, then, and then you make an, uh, you observe your pain-free ability, right? So you say, okay, this one makes sense, right? Like I can't do this one. Okay, I can extend, I can do this. What can I do without pain? What range of motion do you have, right? Passive, active. um, And then like, what loads can you tolerate, right? Like axial loading, just like loading the head, like headstand, for instance. And then also like muscular contractions, right? Can I do force here, 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 here? Um, All of the functions that you could possibly do, potentially in all of the different positions, um, you make an assessment of those, right? Mm-hmm. And you also keep in mind that different types of muscular contractions, isometric, um, eccentric and concentric, but also like isokinetic um, can have different effects, right? So mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of things where like moving your head, say, say like with this, right? This is the this was the cause of the injury. Okay, maybe turning my head this way is painful, but maybe actually if I do like an isometric contraction and I like push my face back here, right? Maybe that actually feels good. Hmm. And maybe that, that, maybe after I do that, I feel less pain when I actually look over here, right? That happens quite often. So you, you make an assessment and you keep that in mind. Um, and then, so the, the third step, the crux of the method is various things may help or hinder. And so from there, what you're looking at is, okay, you have an idea of what you can do without pain, but now all these different things you can do 
will have an effect on how the pain changes and how the function changes. And so that's the crux where you figure out through observation, through taking notes, what things are helpful and what things make it worse, right? And so it could be, and, and helpful and make it worse, not what is painful, because sometimes something that's painful, and again, there's research to support this, not only is there research to support this, there's research that supports the idea that sometimes this is even more helpful than avoiding pain, is like even pushing into pain up to a level of like four out of 10, just on like a, a you know, what, what you would rate of a 10 out of 10 scale of pain, what you would call a four, going up that level during your rehab can be more helpful than staying at a pain-free range. Um, I generally recommend people stay more in the pain-free stuff. I think that's more safer, more conservative um, for most people, even though the research has shown like that can be more helpful. But like, yeah, so this, this V step, various things may help or hinder, what are the things that are, are making our function improve? What, are, what, what can I do? Like if I do that isometric, can I now have more function with less pain, mm-hmm. right? Or say I just stay in this position where it hurts. Can I now just do less? Is everything more painful now, right? Mm-hmm. That's also, that's very possible. This was the mechanism of injury and I just stay here. That's very possible. Um, and then also keeping in mind like dosage, right? What is the load? What is the volume? Um, yeah. And then, so keeping track of that and then finding, okay, when you find, you find what things make it worse, you avoid those, you find the things that make it better, rinse and repeat, like <laughs> add the volume, you know, start using those. Um, and then basically the thing really, the, the crux of it is like when you, when you can get to the next day and everything is better, right? Everything is better tomorrow than it was today, like at the same time. So like usually when you wake up in the morning, things are going to be the worst, right? You'll be the stiffest, things will be the most sensitive. And so if you wake up tomorrow and things are less painful than they were this morning, like at, at that point, you can say like, today was a successful day of rehab as far as increasing your outcome. Um, and from there, that's when you can say, okay, the things I did yesterday, all those things that I took notes on, that was a success a net success. And hence now I can really repeat those. And, and you have to do that because sometimes say I did a bunch of things. Some of them maybe have, some of them sometimes will increase your function in the short term, but the next day it will be more painful mm-hmm. or more likely that's, that's fairly rare. More likely things won't hurt while you do them, but they can hurt more the next day. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful of that. And you're not sure that hasn't happened until the next day. And again, like that's one of the things where taking notes is really helpful because if you try to just keep all that, that information in your head, it's just not going to work. Like I've, I've seen too many people try and fail to like, it's just, it's just not going to work. And it's certainly not going to work as well. Like just, just take the damn notes. Um, And so from there, like you find the things that work, you've made progress on a day-to-day level. 
you, you start and then you start repeating and each day you get better and better as and time goes on you figure out more and more of like the things that are helpful um, and tinkering with those so that they work even better and gradually increasing the loading working back to like your previous level of function um, and then e is the next step is like eliminate weaknesses so like so if you were doing just general stuff before the function is generally increasing then like you would go to exactly the most challenging part right so in this particular crossface injury it would be exactly how you got crossface right and okay now you're going to work on that weakness you're going to you're going to work through and get it so that that worst section is no longer painful and you have full function um, and then R is return to sport. And so the, the steps don't have to perfectly be in series. They can be in parallel and a little bit mix and match. But um, at some point, um, perhaps after you've completely eliminated the weakness or maybe in parallel a little bit, um, you start going back to the sport you were doing or like the activity that caused the injury, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, in the video, I laid out all of these ways that you can like modify and things to take into account when you're thinking about like what sport you're doing and how to reintegrate yourself into that. Um, and then the last step is um, strength and pass. S is strength and pass baseline. Uh, and so um, the, the unfortunate truth is that we know that um, the, the biggest risk factor for any injury is previously having that injury, which means that like um, in my eyes, like our work isn't done when you've just gone back to the sport and you're pain-free, you're at the level you were at before, um, means if you're lucky, even if you're lucky, like you'd still be at the same injury risk as before, if not probably much higher. Yep. So hence, like from there, we should really work to like increase the function, like increase the strength um, and the mobility if, if um, necessary um, to get you at a, a higher level than you were at before and hence protect you from the injury that you got before. Yeah, well, I think you did pretty well there with a quick summary and, you yeah. know, for, for those listening um yeah i will i will link that um video in the notes because uh yeah i think it goes for about 30 minutes and you use um one of the examples of when you got injured as well which i thought i provided like a, a really nice context to how to practically approach it um but yeah this is where i did want to maybe to discuss like maybe like a classic example of rolling an ankle right like everyone does this and how we could sort of apply this you know is there um is there some sort of like protocol for just like at least initial rest the start even for just like initial sort of pain level yeah. assessment as well or should you start just jumping into you know trying some gentle ankle circles that sort of thing because you know um my experience with maybe some of these like Tra more trauma-based ones as well as like, you know, you have this inflammation and then, you, you know, like your ankle might swell up like a, as a golf ball. Um, but then, and some, some of this movement may make some of this inflammation like 
worse. So, you know, is that, uh, do we just want to be at those initial stages, maybe like say in this example, just trying to minimize inflammation or is inflammation good and just, you know, just let it happen until it settles. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, how would you sort of like take that example to, to, to use this framework, especially in that early stage when it's, it's just happened, you know, cause like saying that Johnny no knife one, like he's right there doing yeah. arm circles straight away. Right. So. Okay. So first, like right off the bat, inflammation is a good thing swelling is always bad swelling is like in no way in no paradigm is swelling healthy um and swelling is is basically so your your body has like an immune reaction to to anything in this case an injury um and swelling is like when those immune cells that go in if they kind of stick around basically they're trying to like take out the trash and like at a cellular level, move things around, right? And so if they get stuck there for a while, that becomes, they themselves become inflammatory. And it leads to this like feedback loop that becomes like so much inflammation, like so much uh, of the immune system is physically going there that the tissues swell up, right? That is never a good thing. And that is always like one of our, if it happens, that's one of our biggest priorities. Like I would say to the extent that it'd be right up there with pain, you know, of, of like super high priority for injury. Um, so, so what would you be doing to, you know, like reducing swelling, you know, is that the, you know, put your leg up rest for, for that part so that it doesn't, um, keep on swelling up like yeah know, what's the approach there okay um hold on. let's let's talk about rest first so we'll come back to the salt uh so with the rest so the rest um was actually so this question you're asking like for me this is what what held me back from making this rehab video for like a year because <laughs> like I really wanted to, um, like Ido's got his method and I've been doing my practice, but um, for me, like to make a very public video like this, like that is not enough to like really be putting out this information. Like I need to like, okay, what does the science say? You know, I need to have that understanding as well. Mm. And, and at least know that like, yeah, Ida's not saying one thing, and meanwhile, the science has said like, "Oh no, that's no, you really shouldn't be re should be resting." Um, and it was actually very tricky to find any research on. It. So actually, there isn't any research on rest in general for injuries. Mm. And so all we have, the closest thing we have, is um, rest for specific injuries, which gen. It, and it's not really rest. It's actually like early versus like normal rehab, mm. accelerated rehab versus standard of care. Um, most of it is, I think there's, there's literally a handful of studies. I think there's only like five right now that I've been able to find. Um, and the, the trend seems to be that the early rehab group does do better 
it's not always sig statistically significantly better. Some of that is just because like the studies are small, um, but they, they do generally seem to do better um, with pain, um, certainly in the short term, like they seem to recover faster um, and they seem to gain more function back, which of course makes sense because they're, they're doing more training. Hmm. Um, so the research is there to, to support the idea that doing rehab earlier is better, even like active stuff. Um, however, even with like the most aggressive of those studies, like even, even if you tried to be as aggressive as possible and like do the rehab, I think there was one study where they basically started them on rehab, like the moment they kind of got in, hmm. but still like on average, they said like, it took most of their athletes on average, like two days to come in, like they were injured and then they got into the study two days late. Hmm. Right. Already like, that's quite a bit, you yeah. know, there's, there's a good amount of things that have changed in those two days. Um, and then in general, it's going to take like, I don't know, another few days at minimum to like kind of get people onto a program and all the logistics involved with doing a study, right. Even if you're trying to do as fast as you can. So in, in my eyes, I think that the research is, is pretty limited here as far as like what you can do as far as really are we going to go full johnny no knife like two hours post-injury we're at the gym or should we take two days of rest or should we take like two weeks of rest right yeah um one of the things that's interesting that i will say is if you look at level of pain at like long term like six months later there doesn't seem to be a difference between like the early group and like the the delayed group, like the normal group, basically. So if you do the rehab, like you get better, like it doesn't matter if it's earlier or later, as long as you do the work. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That's what it seems like. Um, yeah. So, so, the research seems to support the idea of earlier rehab. Um, but then, so like, there's this whole like rice acronym, right? And like Ito and a lot of people like kind of threw it out um, a few years back because the guy that invented the rice protocol himself, like was like, oh, sorry guys, like I was wrong. Um, like, let's stop doing this shit, you know? And mm -hmm. for those that don't know, right, rice is, um, Rest ice compression elevation is like one of the big, it is like kind of the fundamental acronym in like standard of care injury rehab. This is right. Rest ice. What are you going to do for your injury? Rest ice compression elevation. Um, so what it seems like is that rest is sort of out that we want to do rehab earlier rather than later. Um, but like, again, like, there's some level of caution there as far as like, it's certainly not that the research is, is super strong here at all. Like, it's not like, it's not like there's 20 studies that have been done and they all show that, you know, if you start your rehab two hours post-injury, you know, that, that you're killing it and, and rehabbing much faster. Um, 
but it does seem like probably starting earlier is better. Um, the icing was a big one. And, and so I ended up doing, I was able to do like a, a research review for one of my classes on like ice specifically and, and rice in general. Um, again, cause I wanted to double dip a little, you know, cause I was yeah. like, this is something I, I want to know for this stuff anyway. And I need to do a paper for this class. So perfect. Right. <laughs> and, um, it turns out the story is a lot more complicated. So like, basically the guy that invented the, the, the rice protocol, it was based on research in mice. Um, way back. I think he invented it in like 1973. And so it's based on like research in mice. And then he kind of recalled it. He was like, oh, this doesn't work because of more research in mice in, you know, later in like the 90s and 2000s. But the thing for me was, if you look at the research in humans, and this is one of the things, like one of the things I learned in biochemistry, uh, from from that mentor Chris Contact, like he always had a saying. So we, we were a, a technically a cancer lab. Like that was the main focus on the lab was was working with cancer. And uh, so they had this saying that apparently was like a common saying in at Stanford of like, if you can't cure cancer in mice, you should just quit <laughs> <laughs> because it's like basically it's like easy to do. You know, it's easy to show something in, in mice that when you transfer that to humans, that protocol, that drug, that small molecule, whatever, all sorts of shit goes sideways because we're a lot more complicated, you know? Um, and so that was a big takeaway for me is you can't just generalize from, from mouse to human. Like there's, there's a lot of big differences. Um, so yeah, when you look at the human research, the story is, is significantly different. Like basically it seems like ice always reduces the pain. It reduces the pain on a short term. And it seems like it, it was harder to see, but, but it seems like it also... it might decrease the pain a little bit on the longer term. It, it might not, you know, but it certainly reduces the pain at the beginning. And so, and another thing I took from the science world is like, um, it's very hard to validate mechanisms, right? So like this icing is a great example. So it's easy to say like, okay, we had 20 people, we did the icing and like, you know, give them a one to 10 scale of pain. They feel statistically significant less pain when we gave them the ice and not. Um, that's pretty easy to do. When you try to say, what is the mechanism for how that happened? That is a whole different fucking thing. Hmm. And that is way harder to validate, like so, so, so much harder. Um, and so like, Basically, for anyone watching this, if you see something with a mechanism that's proposed, you should be a lot more skeptical than like a result, right? 
so for instance, like people would assume stretching works by like increasing the length of the tissues. So you do a stretch, you, you 12 weeks, you know, time goes by and you can go farther. You assume your tissues got longer. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. The mechanism is different, you know? Um, and it happens for like pretty much everything. Mechanisms are really hard to accommodate. So with icing, the, the mechanism that was, one of the ones that was proposed before was that, and, and this is where you can do more of the mechanistic research in mice. Uh, you, you can't, <laughs> in the same way we talked about like euthanizing the mice and like you can, you can, <laughs> frankly, you can, I'll, I'll just say it, you, you can slice them up and like after <laughs> they've passed and yep. you can see what's happened like to the tissues and you can do these staining and see what's happening on the chemical level, right? You yep. can look at the tissues. If, if you and I enter a study on icing, they can't slice up our tendons after and yep. see what's, what's happened, right? At best they can do an MRI and that's expensive as hell. Mm. Um, and also not the same, you know, not the same level of accuracy. So with icing, a lot of the mechanistic research was in mice and the mechanism they were proposing was like a decrease in inflammation. Um, and then they were saying, then later it was like, oh, maybe we're not decreasing inflammation. Maybe we're, we're just delaying it. And, and that was part of the thing that was like, okay. Like, and, uh, and, then, and then some of it was, they, they did icing and then it actually like delayed the recovery in mice. But then the problem with that is when you, when you do cryotherapy, that's the technical term, mm-hmm. on a mouse, like the, um, there's something called like the square cube law. And it's like, it's a really important thing. Basically, as you scale up with size, like strength, structural strength and like mass or surface area and mass don't scale proportionally, mm. right? Like, so the, the injured tissue of the mouse, say it's a, a Achilles tendon of the mouse, Achilles tendon equivalent, if, if a mouse has one, I think, um, they have way more surface area and way less mass in that tendon, in that leg, right? And hence, when you do cryotherapy on them, you're going to be able to cool it down much colder, much faster mm-hmm. versus a human leg, much less surface area to the amount of mass. And hence you apply the same, like, you know, 15 degrees Celsius or, or is zero degrees Celsius. It's going to cool down way slower. It's going to be much more local to like the skin rather than like deeper tissues. It's a whole different thing. And so that was one of the things that like, okay, Icing can delay recovery in mice, but we're actually cooling those tissues down way more than what's physiologically possible in humans. Like mm-hmm. it's not happening in humans at all. Um, and so basically the, the mechanism they're proposing now is that icing works by a reduction in tissue temperature. But basically there's like a, <laughs> We're going into a lot of science here. Yeah, no, I'm trying to figure (laughs) out. So do we, do we ice or not ice? (laughs) 
especially if if you know pain is our guide and then if it reduces the pain then yes. maybe yes it's it's yeah. subjectively I mean, then the, the short answer is nice. yes. yes okay we do ice we do okay. ice but so um the the proposed mechanism is that we reduce the tissue temperature the the deep tissue t- tissue that's actually been injured mm. not just the skin mm. and by doing that um all the cellular metabolism happens at a slower level mm. and because of that so because of the injury like there can be damage to like the, the blood vessels that supply blood and oxygen mm. to the injured tissue and because of that they can start to die off and mm. so you have it's called like secondary injury where like the primary injury is like the thing that was initially damaged secondary injury could be all sorts of other stuff that was perfectly fine but then doesn't get enough blood flow and just dies off yeah right especially yeah. if they're like swelling um so the the idea is by reducing the tissue temperature the cellular metabolism happens slower and hence those tissues can survive even with having less oxygen and you reduce the secondary okay um, yeah. secondary injury yeah so that's an interesting proposed mechanism that that could work right but again this makes them hard to validate the thing that that is a lot more obvious and a lot more clear is the nerves just fire less when you cool them so you're mm. going to get less of a nociception signal like that is definitely a clear thing um so we get some of that like that's definitely explaining some of the reduction in pain with icing and we also potentially get a reduction of the secondary injury, if that's a real thing, yeah. right? Um, so the way I see it, like icing is is an easy thing in humans. I think um, I think there's there's not really much of any downside to doing it. Like certainly not from the research for an injury. So um, if you have um, One thing where icing is not a good idea is um, after resistance training. Mm. Like then it seems like this sort of potentially some sort of mechanism involving the inflammation um, is critical to like the the building muscle and adaptation process to resistance training Mm. and hence there's been a number of studies where if you have people do an ice bath after resistance training, it like negates the progress. They make. So that's one thing you, you don't want to ice for, yeah. but for injuries, it seems like, you know, go ahead, do it. And, and it will definitely reduce the pain, you know, mm-hmm. on a, on a short-term basis. And especially in the first like 24 to like 48 hours, that's when it's proposed to like, potentially have the best effect of like really reducing the secondary injury. Okay. Um, That's clarified a little bit for yeah. me because, because, you know, you always keep on reading, oh, this rice thing now is like super uh, old, throw it out of the window. Yeah. And then, so you're like, so should I just like never rice then? Or like yeah. what happens if, yeah, you've got this crazy swelling going on as well, because that, yeah. that can't, 
it certainly doesn't feel good as well and um, yeah. it restricts you know your movement opportunities as well if yeah. it gets out of hand so you know yeah. is it is it about like maybe still embracing some of these methods such as the ice compress even elevate if that does reduce the swelling so that you can return to um, just exploring your movement capacity earlier and then maybe with you know less pain signals as well so then you can go through this protocol of movers yes yeah yeah and um yeah and this would fit into the v right like various things may help you hinder that can include ice and that's something you can do immediately right immediately post injury um fuck what was i gonna say um yeah so um yeah, and there, there is also research on like ice seems to help reduce swelling, certainly post-surgery. Um, post like injury, I think it's a little harder to say, but it probably should help with that as well. Um, and then compression seems to be helpful. So compression is still in and elevation seems to be helpful as well. So elevation is also still in. So yeah, it's really just like the resting that we can maybe be more aggressive about like doing a lot less, mm. like maybe just removing that from the paradigm completely. I probably see the value in at least um, when you've done, uh, had had a injury, at least at, at the start, um, it might be helpful to set a baseline of how you might feel when you uh, wake up the next day, because then you can compare it to the, to the next day. Cause sometimes, you know, if you've injured, you don't really know the scope of the injury. You maybe yeah. you're playing in that area where if you do a bit more, maybe you might exacerbate the injury as well. And you, and then mm -hmm. you might start feeling a little bit better because you, you know, that can happen, but then you don't have that baseline of how you're going to feel the next day where, especially yeah. once you've woken up and, uh, all the signals that are different, right? So maybe that's an observation that I've made from when when I've had injuries that you know I've played with that that fire before, and then especially yeah. with, with uh, neck ones, um, and then it's always like the stiffest in the morning, like afterwards, right? So like having yeah. that sort of like one day baseline, I I can wait one day, like basically that's that's what I've yeah. decided, and then from there that allows me to track progress a bit more, um, a, a bit better. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, that's, that's kind of what I decided and, and recommended in that video as well of like, I think it's fairly low risk to just, you know, take the first day to, to mostly chill. If it's like a minor injury, like, yeah, maybe, maybe you just rehab immediately, especially if you see it's helpful, but like, for anything that seems more serious, you know, take, take that first day, chill out, rest, you know, use, use rest size compression elevation. You can use that all immediately. Um, and then um, from there or, or rest at the, <clears throat> sorry, better than rest is protect. That's a better. So then there's like mm -hmm. a price. Um, so protect that area rather than just like, rest your whole body and like, you know, lay in bed, watch Netflix all day. Yeah. Uh, cause you're, yeah. Cause you hurt your finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so protect that area the first day and, and you can use ice and the other things. Um, 
But after that, and because the other thing is, if you start the, the rehab immediately, it's often going to be sensitizing just because, like, basically because, like, inflammation is catching up, right? Mm -hmm. And because the body is catching up to, like, the signal of what actually happened. And that can be really demoralizing if you're trying to run your rehab process as it's getting worse constantly anyway, mm. you know? And so if you wait that first day and like chill out, protect, then you get through most, pretty much all of that, right? And then yeah. you can be fairly sure that like your rehab will have the full chance to like just be helpful and not, not just be overwhelmed by central sensitization and inflammation as well yeah you know well yeah that's starting to make a lot more sense to me so you know i have to thank you for for having a bit more detail um through this uh, methodology that's uh yeah you've so neatly arranged into this wild acronym movers <laughs> uh but bren yeah i just have to um Thank you for your time today because, uh, yeah, we've meandered around through various topics and, and it's been very enjoyable uh, to hear and to connect with you as well, to hear a bit more about your story. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you say you're in Paris at the moment, but what are your, um, yeah, what are your movements upcoming, you know, for those listeners? I know you're doing like a lot more online stuff now, so people yeah. can connect with you through that way, but in terms of, you know, your, your physical movements and what you got planned, what's happening? Yeah, uh, there's a good chunk. Um, so the online coaching is available now, so that's been nice. Um, but so I'm going to LA for uh, Ancestral Health Symposium this weekend or tomorrow. Um, and then from there, I'm coming back to the Bay Area and I'm thinking about moving up to SF or like Berkeley, Oakland area and maybe starting back up like an in-person group thing again because I've really been missing that. So, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, some big things happening. But yeah, I'll be back in California Bay Area, certainly for the end of this year, through the end of this year. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to your movements and, you know, all the ongoing content that you, you'll be sharing, I'm, I'm hoping for. Um, Always really entertaining to watch some of these videos and but also very informative. So yeah, keep on doing the good work, Bren. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I really like your message that you seem to be spreading as well, which is about just um just trying to share more information about what we're doing here with this movement community and the movement yeah. practice as well, and to be open about that. So, you know, thank you very much for um sharing that that message. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for interviewing me here. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for, for watching. Let's see if anyone watches the whole three hours. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brad. Yeah. All right. Take care. You made it. You made it all the way through to the very end. Congratulations. I hope you guys enjoyed that 
conversation with Bren. And if you are keen on checking out any more of his work, as I mentioned at the beginning, he runs a great YouTube channel where he goes in depth into a lot of things. I think there's some crazy video as well where he talks for 24 hours straight. So if you weren't sick of hearing him talk for three hours and you wanted to find out more, go check out that video. I think he covers a lot of different topics and very movement-based as well, a lot of insights. So they're for you guys to enjoy. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much once again for being supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate it. And if you enjoy it, please share it with a friend, send it out to them, spread the good word. If you want to get in touch with me, please feel free to drop me a message on Instagram. You can reach me at P at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can head over to thepassivehang.com. All right, guys. Well, I will leave it at that and hope to see you guys in the next episode.